Welcome to episode 84 of GBW Podcast. My name is Josh, and with me as always is Chris. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> yeah, so Hello, Chris- everybody. <laughs> Chris is not referencing the movie Frozen. He's referencing my obsession with... <laughs> Goats yelling like people videos on YouTube. Dude, I got to tell you people, after last episode, we went on YouTube and we watched goats yelling like humans. And I've never For like seen, an hour. I've never seen Josh lose his shit as much as he did. He was almost on the floor. It's really funny. I'd recommend the Wrecking Ball Goats Yelling Like Humans mashup because it's fucking hilarious. All right. Okay. Remember that one? Yes. Remember at the end when they all came up? It was was so awesome. Or you could just watch like, um, you could also watch something like Fail Armies, like Goats Yelling Like, or Goat Fails. Remember? Those are pretty funny too. Anyway, goats are fucking hilarious. Hi, hi, Josh. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) Off to a good start. (laughs) So on today's episode, we're going to be paying tribute and going through the career of Toby Hooper, who we uh, lost in the latter half of uh, 2017. Anyway, this is long overdue, so I'm glad we're going to be talking about his career. Yeah, and we decided it was time to dive back into a director because we haven't done one of these episodes in a while. So, Cool. But uh, before we get that to that, as usual, we're going to go through what we've seen. Okay. Um, so who's going first? I can go first. Sure. Go first. I'm going to tell you, dude. I'm going to tell you about a movie <laughs> that was way more entertaining than I expected it to be. That when I was watching it, I was yelling at the screen. Of course, it was only one word I was yelling at the screen for the most part. And you know what that word was, dude? What? Shockma. You watch Shockma, dude. Oh, this is why you're so mad at me tonight. I'm not mad at you. Shockma's no, pretty. Shockma's Chris is mad at me because I don't watch stuff he he recommends, but he watches stuff <laughs> I recommend. You're not supposed to put. You're not supposed to put our dirty laundry on the air. It's not dirty laundry. No, because I'm gonna make a concerted effort to watch something that you recommend. Okay. Anyway, dude. But anyway, Shockma's fucking rad. I watch Shockma. <laughs> And I don't think I've yelled the word Shockma that much at a TV in my life. You were yelling it? Ye- I really? was. Like, every time. Every time, dude. Like, okay, so Josh has talked about this movie a little bit in the past, so I'm just going to go over the plot really fast. It's been a while since I talked about it. So Shockma is the loving tale of a group of medical students in a high-rise building who decide to do LARPing, a.k.a live action role playing it's basically we're gonna go around this medical building looking for clues to try and save the princess from the top of the tower but it's a game it's it's a game like D &D or something yeah but the problem is roddy mcdowell who's arranging this game and is also the head of this medical clinic in the first scenes of the movie, he performs a weird brain surgery on this baboon called Shockma. <laughs> and they think Shockma's dead, but no fucking way is Shockma dead. And Shockma is pissed. So Shockma runs around the building hunting down the LARPers, and it's fucking glorious. <laughs> wow, you liked it way more than I did. I, I didn't. There's things about Shockma I didn't like. But when Shockma was on, I fucking loved Shockma. And let me tell you why. Every time Shockma came on screen, I was like, fucking Shockma. I was like, Shockma. Every time. There's multiple scenes of this fucking animal running towards the camera. Like full speed. Running, yeah. And I'm like, Shockma. Every time. 
this fucking thing scared the shit out of me. Really? Because when I'm thinking, I would hate to be on that fucking set because there's multiple scenes of this baboon fucking freaking out, hammering on doors, jumping off yeah. walls, screaming, fucking destroying rooms. And I'm like, they did not have this animal under control when they were making this movie. There's no fucking way they had this animal under control. No. And I watched an interview with the actual Shockman's actual trainer when Where? they screened it at Cine Family. It's no on way. U- it's on YouTube. Really? And he even said... You can't control a baboon when it's on set. Oh my god. It gets pissed off at you and you gotta run. I'm like, this really? is fucking dangerous. <laughs> wow. Shockma felt dangerous to me. <laughs> and it didn't feel dangerous because of the movie. It felt dangerous because I'm like, that animal freaks out so much. I'm like, they must have been like fucking hiding when they were filming this thing. It was scary, dude. It's scary, I know. But every time it's coming, I'm like, Shockma! <laughs> and Christopher uh, Christopher Atkins, who's the main star of yeah. this, he was in the Blue Lagoon and yeah. the pirate movie. He's like, Shockma! He's like, <laughs> through the whole movie, he's like, calm down, Shockma, calm down. I'm like, you don't fucking go up to Shockma and tell him to calm down. He's too busy crushing people's heads in fucking elevators and eating their faces and shit. <laughs> Like it was really like I because I, 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 I mean it dawns on you pretty quickly that there's like really no puppets. This is no the actual. Bedroom. There is puppets for the close-up scenes, yeah. but it's done. I actually thought the puppetry was actually really decent. Yeah, for a low-budget movie like this, like I was just like. I was just fucking scared. And I wasn't scared for the characters in the movie. I was scared for the people who made this fucking movie. Because <laughs> I'm like, I would not want to be on that set. And, you know, it's limited sets because it's set in, like, really an office building. So there's only, like, four rooms they go into. You got Roddy McDowell going over, over and out, over, <laughs> over and out repeatedly on walkie-talkies through the whole thing. Yeah. And then you've got, like, you know, a guy who gets trapped in a closet by Shockma, And he's holding the door shut. <laughs> Like he's pulling it shut and then he's reaching out with one hand and getting a beaker down from the shelf. And then he's like holding the door shut, holding the door shut. Then he fucking lets go of the door and reaches over and gets the jar, the jar of acid and pours it in the fucking beaker. Yeah. I'm like you don't fucking let go of the door handle when Shockman's outside. <laughs> you just don't do that. And then how's it backfire? He gets fucking acid on himself later. It's like you don't fucking do that. Shockman will rip your face off no matter what. But it's a fun movie. Like it's it's, fun. it's a fun movie. It it gets really repetitive after a while. Yeah, it does because it's just people, you know, kind of creeping through the hallways and like Shockma shows up, and yeah. they're like, "Oh shit, it's Shockma! Let's go run to a door and shut it so Shockman can freak out and hammer on the door and jump off the walls and screech at us!" Fucking... Oh my god, I I'm just picturing it like, like jumping at the door and stuff. It's fucking brutal. <laughs> it's crazy. But it's like. <laughs> They had some like stuff in this too that they could have used. Like there's scenes when they go out into the emergency stairs, and there's someone on a higher level looking down, and it's shot from below. So it's really cool because it's all the stairs, and you see the people on multiple levels. Yeah. And I'm like, why don't you have fucking shockmen there doing something? And they never did. Well, okay, here's my thing with this movie: is it just felt really easy to just leave Shockman an abandoned floor but but go away but <laughs> Amanda Wiss's character says to Chris Racken's character one time can Shockman open doors and he's like yes oh okay so maybe they, I missed that. they did explain it because I was like why didn't they just fucking just leave him on the floor yeah. too I was like and then she says to him can Shockman open doors and he's like yes and I'm like oh okay that explains a lot Shockman fucking press elevator buttons for fuck's sake because Shockman's pressing the elevator buttons to get people to come up to him so he can kill them he's like he don't fuck around 
He's like, he's, he's Shockman don't fuck around. I want someone to make a, like a fucking meme or a video or something that just says Shockman don't fuck around because he doesn't. Wow. He's mad. Wow. He's fucking pissed to be in front of a movie camera. Like, wow. Yeah. Like, it's, um, that's what makes this movie more entertaining though, because I'm just like, you're just in awe that someone didn't get killed. It's, it's it's like it's a one of a kind like yeah. and like if you think Congo and Monkey Shines is scary like no yeah, Shockman this is the monkey Shockman movie. scared the shit out of me like <laughs> the movie itself didn't but Shockman did yeah because yeah. but I actually found the movie really entertaining for the most part it does like I said have a few slow repetitive moments but uh, you know it had some good shocks it, too like, it could have been about twenty minutes shorter. Yeah, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but I'm going to tell you that I loved the fucking ending. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. but I'm not going to talk about. It, but it was a great ending. <laughs> um, the only other thing is, uh, it was kind of fun to see Amanda Wiss in this. Yeah, she was uh, Tina in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. So I've had nightmares about Amanda Wiss since I was ten years old. Yeah, um, and the only other things I really had seen her in was Better Off Dead. She plays John Cusack's ex-girlfriend yeah and then she was in one of the blood fist sequels <laughs> and that's really all i remember her for so to see her in this yeah and see her still she's like really young still in this because it's like only a couple years after elm street and everything i was like oh that's cool and she she has a pretty good moment in this too that i don't want to spoil yeah. but it, it's it's an entertaining flick i really had a good time with it i was <laughs> scared of Shockma. <laughs> Shockman don't fuck around. I'm glad you watched it. So uh, <laughs> it's available from Code Red. Yeah. I don't know. I know they did a limited uh, run on Blu-ray. They did, yeah. Uh, but I think the uh, I think the um, DVDs easily come by. Um, the only I don't thing, think it's that easy to come by, but it's... Uh, I think I the, saw it for like 20 bucks on yeah, Amazon. Yeah, the Blu-ray is difficult to the come DVD by. The DVD is yeah. easy yeah. to come by yeah. is what I'm talking yeah. about. But um, the, the, the Cabot emptor of that is in Shockma the DVD, there is a bloodbath theater thing, which is like the oh, yeah. predecessor to that Katarina's Nightmare Cinema. I can't stand that chick, by the way. <laughs> she annoys me. Yeah. Like, she just... She's like this really bad European... She's supposed to be a model or something, I guess, and she just gives you trivia at the beginning, kind of like an Elvira type of thing. Yeah. But her line reading is terrible. Yeah. And I just can't stand her. So she's... If you watch the bloodbath theater version it's her she has an intro and an outro but in the intro i think it's either in the intro or the outro she mentions there's a commentary and there's a interview right, and all that yeah and that's not on the dvd yeah so that's just a warning for anyone who wants to pick this up that this there are special features on the blu-ray that you won't get right. on the on the dvd but shock yeah, i really wanted to hear that commentary. shock shock was a shock move was wow yeah what a surprise right on good so <laughs> awesome well, I'm going to start off with a um, Netflix movie because I decided to watch The Babysitter. Oh, the Mick G one? Yeah, directed okay. by Mick G, who uh, most of us know from doing the Charlie's Angels reboot movies. Gross. <laughs> I like the first Charlie's Angels. What no. if Sam Rockwell was in it? So? He was a good villain. You just told me tonight that you don't like Sam Rockwell because of Poltergeist. That's true, but he was a good villain in this movie. Because I was trying to sell you to get you to buy the movie Moon tonight, which is really good. And you're like, I am. I don't like Sam Rockwell. That's true. And I'm like, but you were just saying you like Sam Rockwell. I'm like, is it Poltergeist? You're like, yeah, it's Poltergeist. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I could watch Any, him for 90 anyhow. minutes if he's the only person in the movie. 
But anyway, uh, where where did that come from? We were talking about Charlie's Angels, but now you're talking Charlie's about Angels. Babysitter. Yes, he was in Charlie's Angels, and, and Crispin Glover was in Charlie's Angels. I thought it was pretty good. The first one? You didn't like it? No. Really? And it ended in the body double house. Yeah, no. No, not anyway. I, I like the first uh, Charlie's Angels. I didn't like the I didn't like the second one though. I, I I'll just watch the old '70s show. I'm I'm good with that. Yeah. All right. So this one, um, it's the tale of a uh, young young boy named Cole, played by Judah Lewis. He's uh, 12 years old and it's uh, kind of a kind of a nerd, kind of a kind of into horror, um, kind of getting gets bullied. Um, but he's got a super super hot babysitter named B, played by Samara Weaving. Who's um, don't really know much about her. I do know she's one of the stars of that new uh, Chaos movie directed by Joe Lynch and starring uh, co-starring uh, Stephen Yoon. Mayhem, yeah, mayhem. But um, she she was really good in this. So um, yeah, so really hot babysitter. You know, always wearing like short shorts, and uh, she's uh, taken a liking to Cole. And of course, Cole, being twelve years old, has a crush on her. Um, but you know, what twelve-year-old all... didn't have a crush on their babysitter? Uh, well, unless you had a gross babysitter. I don't know if I had a babysitter when I was twelve. That's true. It would have been younger for me too. Yeah, I think I was too young to have crushes when I had babysitters. Okay, fair enough. Go on. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you've been watching too much babysitter porn, Chris. <laughs> Shh. <laughs> anyway, Shh. so Cole's you know having a bit of a crisis too because he's like wondering if he's too old to have a babysitter but at the same time he's kind of enjoying that B who's really cool um and him get along and and that he he enjoys it when his parents go out so he can spend time with his crush um and I think she kind of knows it too but uh it's all innocent like nothing sinister is going on there um, there's a really cool scene in the first act of this movie where they're, you know, we're showing them bonding and stuff and they're, they have like a backyard movie screen going and they're playing Billy Jack and acting nice. out like my favorite scene from Billy Jack and like reciting all the dialogue and everything. So it was pretty awesome. And the Billy Jack reference uh, comes back later in the movie as well. So, um, I got to give props big time to Mick G for throwing in a major Billy Jack reference because I feel like Billy Jack is kind of being forgotten these days. Um, well, Shout Factory's not doing him any favors. Yeah, well, uh, the Shout Factory uh, box set uh, is pretty unfortunate because yeah. they screwed it up quite quite badly on uh, two of the films. But it is one of my all-time favorite cult movies, and um, it was really cool to see a reference to it because I, I just hope people don't forget about this movie because it is a real classic. Anyway, um, so after their whole bonding thing, um, um, Judah, uh, sorry, Cole's, Cole, uh, um, he's into her, but he's also got this friend, um, this um, young uh, girlfriend down the street, not a girlfriend, but a neighbor that he hangs out with, who sort of says to him, well, well you know, why don't, you know, I'll bet you she's like having sex with her boyfriend after you go to bed and you don't know what she's doing after you go to sleep. So why don't you stay up and find out? So he decides, okay, I'm going to find out what, what happens after I go to sleep, what she does. So anyway, he he uh, sneaks out of his room at night and, like, is peering down the um, – there's, like, a landing on the upstairs where he can see down into the living room. And he's watching, um, and he sees that she's invited a bunch of her friends over, and they're playing, like, a spin-the-bottle type game. But then all of a sudden, um, one of them murders another 
one of the guys that's there. And then it turns out that they're all part of like a kind of like a satanic cult. And the rest of the movie is um, Cole trying to figure out what the fuck's going on with his babysitter and how to escape from these people because they get onto him really quick and they're all kind of chasing him around the house. Um, so it's a pretty simple setup. But um, it's a really, really fun horror comedy. And uh, I'm not a big fan of horror comedies, but this is kind of what I would want from one because it's not, it's not play, it's, it's funny, but it's not going over the top with the laughs. Um, it, it's really, really campy. Um, the babysitter's great. Um, one of the guys is a jock named Max, uh, played by Robbie Amell. He's running around shirtless the whole time. Pretty cliche, but like they're really embracing the tropes here. Um, Bella Thorne from um, your favorite Amityville, uh, The Awakening, <laughs> uh, plays uh, kind of a cheerleader. Um, there's also a black guy, token black guy, and um, and an Asian woman named Sonia, and they're all trying to get coal. Um, it's it's you know not a lot happens in this. It's just him running around and trying to escape, but it, it all at the same time it it is also a bit of a coming of age as he's like kind of have to end up you know for lack of a better term man up and face the face the threat that's uh that's in his house and also sort of get over his crush really quickly so i really dug it um uh, i really really love the poster for this movie so when you're scrolling through netflix i really really love that and uh, i think mick g's uh, done a really good job here of uh and i'm really happy with the way it turned out so uh, i'd really recommend this one i know it's been getting some up and some down thumbs on this but uh for a 90 minute time waster i you couldn't really ask for much more so yeah yeah i was i've been putting off watching this one i'm not sure why i just been putting off it's fun i mean it's not something i'd buy but it was a fun night to watch well because it was like i saw it i saw it the day it popped up i had seen the trailer earlier and i was just like it looks okay and then i've just not really i think it's because my st- I've been kind of avoiding streaming movies right now because mm. I'm trying to pare down the collection at home a little bit. Right. So I've been trying to stay away from streaming as much as I can. But then saying that, the next movie I'm going to talk about is a streaming movie. Right. And it's also a Netflix original. Okay. So we can segue into that. Yeah. It uh, was scary. It was gory. Yeah, I heard it, it was gory. Oh, sorry. It wasn't that scary. It was gory. It was funny. Um, and it was fun. Yeah, I might check it out. Yeah, I, I would recommend it if you're, in, especially if you like horror. Comics. Yeah, I'll, I'll go check out a movie you recommended. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> anyway, my next one is a is also a Netflix original movie. Um, it's one that just came on, I think, a week ago now, and uh, it's a movie that I was anticipating. I believe I listed it on my uh, anticipated for this year on our end of the year recap, and that's uh, a futile and stupid gesture. Right. Which is the uh, story of National Lampoon Magazine co-founder Doug Kenny, played right. by Will Forte. Uh, it's directed by David Wayne, who did Wet Hot American Summer. And he also did all the Netflix shows that were spun off from that, among other movies. Um, also stars Dom, Dom Hal Gleason as uh, his best friend, Henry Beard, who's also co-created National Lampoon. So basically... This is back when National Lampoon wasn't a kind of a joke name that you saw above the title of a terrible sex comedy that you bought at Dollarama for $2 on DVD. Or like, an awesome sex comedy. Well, there's not many of those. <laughs> but um, Dorm days, man. So, yeah. 
So, so National Lampoon started out in Harvard. These guys had like a kind of like a parody magazine, and then instead of actually kind of becoming adults and moving on and getting real jobs, they were like, "No, let's try and make this into a." Our national thing, like let's make this into a real magazine, like National Lampoon. So they managed to find a publisher. They started pushing the boundaries, got their s- circulation up, and this just kind of follows Doug's journey from Harvard to a successful magazine to making movies like Animal House and Caddyshack and stuff like that to his eventual quite terrible demise. I mean, I can. This is a true story. So if I tell you how things happen, it's not like I'm spoiling it. You can go online and see this. Basically, Doug Kenny does end his life. in, re- in Like, he committed suicide in real life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, it was kind of like a rise and fall for him. And he's a guy who was considered to be, like, this comedic genius. And he was a troubled, troubled person in real life. That's kind of my main problem with this movie, is that it doesn't know how to deal with that tone. Mm. Like... It it starts out wanting to be a, you know, like a, a funny, quirky comedy. And then halfway through it kind of has to shift gears to have the start considering the tragedy of his life and bringing that to the forefront because you can't keep going on that tone. But the balance was just weird to me, hmm. like because it started out, you know, it had him, you know, getting into trouble, like, you know, going into publishers and them saying, no, we don't want to publish your magazine and tell them to fuck off and just going all this, like, making their most famous magazine covers, like taking a picture of a dog with a gun to its head saying, buy this magazine or we'll shoot this dog and, you know, (laughs) restaging that in the movie. And you've got, like, guys like, um, like I said, you've got Domino Gleason as his best friend, Henry Beard. You've got, um, what's her name now? Uh, Natasha Lyonne playing Annie Betts, who was one of the big writers for the magazine at the time. You've got, uh, you know, Joel McHale from the TV show Community playing Chevy Chase. Okay. It's a really weird because they're getting, they've got a lot of people in this who are familiar faces to play famous people, but they don't look like the famous people. Right. But the movie's also narrated by Martin Mull playing an old Doug Kenny, which is ironic because Doug Kenny never got to that age. And he even says during the movie, like, they break the fourth wall and say, yeah, we know these people don't look like the real people. Right. You know, they do that joke. So it's like breaking the fourth wall, doing jokes like that at the beginning of the movie. And I thought, you know, this is pretty witty. This is pretty funny. And then not knowing how to flip that tone and make it work yeah, was kind of took me out of it because I really enjoyed the first half quite a bit. Right. And then when it started moving more towards the tragic elements of his life, I don't think Will Forte was the right kind of actor to do that. I don't think he could hit that tone quite the way it should have. And I don't think David Wayne as a director could hit that tone quite the way it should have. I'm not saying make it depressing, but you got to give it a little bit more of a serious play and you need to balance the seriousness with your comedy. And you know, when you've got Joe McHale stinking up the places, Chevy Chase, because he's not good as Mm. Chevy Chase. But then you've got, like I said, Natasha Leone, she's great. As and Annie Betts, um, Domino Hill Gleason's really good as Henry Beard, and it's got all these good performances in it. But there was just something holding me back from really, really loving it. Hmm. I'm not saying not to watch it. I'm saying you know I recommend it if you're at all interested in any of the history of National Lampoon because there is stuff in there. But I also feel like 
once you got past the animal house phase, they kind of glossed over a lot of it until, you know, his eventual demise. And I, I could have, this movie could have easily been two hours long instead of an hour and a half. And it probably would have benefited. Whereas I say Shockma, even though it was good, (laughs) could have used 20 less minutes. This could have used another 20 minutes. Okay. So it's kind of like a flip side. Um, The only other thing I want to mention is, uh, a funny little tidbit of trivia that I picked up on, which is a total in-joke, is uh, when they're going around trying to get funding for their magazine, one of the guys who rejects them is the actor Mark Metcalf. Okay, yeah. And he was in Animal House. Yeah. But he was also the, you know, the authoritarian figure in the Twisted Sister videos. Uh, we're not going to take it, yeah. and I want to rock. Yeah. And what does he say to the guys when they come in? And he rejects me. He goes, what do you want to do with your life? <laughs> so I was sitting there laughing for about... Two to three minutes after that line. That's great. So, I mean, that that's great. But um, I just got to say, if you're going to watch this, if you're at all interested, by all means, watch it. Just be aware that if you know the true story, which I did going in, it's not going to work as much for you because it's not a fucking happy story Yeah. by the time it, it plays out. So just be aware of that, that the tonal issues are a little bit, threw me a little bit off. And it might do the same for you if you're aware of Doug Kenny's life and history got it i was never a bit, big fan of that magazine i uh so i'm not that interested in the story um right. would i would i care if i'm not that interested in the, well, the magazine I, stuff? I, I think that if you are at all aware of like the history of comedy and the influence of comedy then you can't deny the influence of national lampoon in the like the 70s and early 80s because it was the premier comedy publication then because right. like you know mad magazine was the the 60s or whatever and it was more toned towards a younger audience where national lampoon was geared towards you know college kids and 20 something like early 20 somethings right so they were an important part of the comedy landscape around that time because you know they also played into the saturday night live thing and they all kind of fed off each other and, you know, they had the uh, the Lemming stage show, which introduced, you know, Belushi and Chevy Chase and all yeah. that, who were cherry picked for Saturday Night Live by Lauren Michaels. Right. So it's like got a lot of that interesting history stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in like the history of how that comedy in that era worked, then it's worth seeing. Yeah. But it's just I think they could have maybe should have made a little bit more of a serious movie than they did. Yeah. yeah. And I am interested in that stuff. I think just, I think you're exactly right at that time. I was a mad magazine guy. So yeah. this was too, too old for me when, well, I, I, when think, I was reading yeah. magazines. Well, exactly. Like, that, yeah. like even for me, like when this magazine was at its height of popularity, I would have been like six, seven years old. Yeah. Right. It's just after the legacy, like once I became more interested in looking back in these, on these things, and everything, that's when I kind of learned the story of national lampoon. And I learned about the influence of national lampoon yeah. and I learned about Doug Kenny and, you know, heard about his story through other mediums. And, you know, that's why I wanted to see it. Mm, so, cool. I mean, I'd recommend it if you're into that kind of stuff. Yeah. But like I said, just be aware that the tone might not agree with you that much. Got it. So that's a, a futile and stupid gesture. All right. Yeah. Well, let's stay on the Netflix train, shall we? Oh, geez. <laughs> a lot of Netflix this week. There is a lot of Netflix this week. So I watched Wheelman. 
Oh, Frank Grillo. Frank Grillo, yeah. So uh, 2017, another new Netflix movie. Uh, This is directed by Jeremy Rush, who um, I couldn't really see it done much else. Um, Stars Frank Grillo from... um, well, he's been in tons of stuff. Yeah, Purge Anarchy is the one that I mostly yeah, point at. Purge for his Anarchy and Purge Election Day. He's also been in like Prison Break or no, Twenty Four and and some other stuff. But uh, no, Prison Break. Sorry, sorry about that. Prison Break. Um, but he's awesome. I, he's like one of these actors that's been around for a while, but his like starting starting to emerge as this like action star in his at like in his late forties. Yeah, and he's he's pretty kick ass and. And uh, he's not a pretty boy. Like, he's kind of reminds me of, like, the old action stars um, of yesteryear that are actually tough guys. Like, this guy seems like a tough dude. Yeah, he was definitely my favorite thing about Purge Anarchy. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Yeah, he stole the show. Um, It also, well, let's just stay on Grillo for a while. Um, So the the premise of this is the whole movie is based around he's a getaway driver. And... uh, the whole movie is based around him being given instructions on how to how to do the the job he's doing that night and he's being told what to do by phone calls that are coming in to his car but then he starts getting other phone calls from a different boss basically threatening things in his life and uh he has to d- decide which which of these people to listen to and he ends up starting to like not know and he has to like switch between calls and constantly decide like which instructions to follow with like the least amount of consequences and you know the movie is filled with like pretty cool driving action um it's really really suspenseful um but the main the main kind of gimmick with this movie is that the whole movie is shot from the car's perspective so it's either shots of him in the car driving or it's shots like you know, from the inside of the car while he gets out of the car and walks out and, you know, talks to someone. The the camera never really leaves the car. There's a, you know, there's a point in the movie where it does leave for a little bit, but 90% of this movie takes place in the car or from the car's perspective. So I thought that was a really good gimmick. Now, that being said, after, you know, yeah, I was thinking I kind of have seen this before. And I haven't actually seen the movie, but there it's was Lock movie, a movie right? called Lock yeah. with Tom Hardy a few years ago that had a very similar conceit. Yeah, because even when you were talking about it, that's yeah. the first thing that popped in my mind. Have I'm you like, seen that one? I haven't seen it, but yeah. I've heard a lot of things about it. Yeah, now this one, I, it feels more like a kind of a pulpy action movie than, than Locke does. I think Locke is more of a serious drama, and this is a lot more of a kind of a 70s throwback. So. I think this is probably the one I'd, I'd like more, and I really like this movie. I, I had a really good time watching it. It went by it like in no time. Uh, Grillo like totally was solid and totally carried the movie, and he had to because the whole movie was basically him. And uh, had had a few good violent moments. Um, some yeah, some good car action. I found that you know there was never really crazy car chases. Like um, you know, I mean, it certainly was. Um, calling back to movies like you know that we talk about all the time like french connection and the seven ups and things like that but bullet but it uh 
it like the car chases never felt as elaborate as those movies, but it was still some good car action. Um, his daughter in this is played by Caitlin Carmichael. Um, I really like this young actress. She's been in tons of stuff. Um, most notably, I saw her in a short last year called Monsters. I know you couldn't stand her, but I thought she was great in that, and I also thought she was great in this. Um, and the only other real kind of major character in this is uh, uh, played by uh, uh, Garrett Dillahunt. Uh, he oh, yeah, plays yeah. a character named Clay. Yeah. He's he's not in it that long, but you'll remember him. He played Krug in the uh, Last House on the Left remake. Yep. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'd, um, I'd really recommend... Uh, checking this one out if you're if this at all sounded interesting um if you're into cars if you're into action movies and if you're into suspense um it really was really well worth seeing so if if the movie takes place mostly from the construct of being shot from inside the car or being shot looking at him sitting in the car yeah how did they film the chases then like, it, is the chases mostly based POV. that way, too? It's POV chases? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because my my problem is, there's, like, I I don't know how I feel about gimmicky stuff like that, because that's one of the reasons I haven't watched that Hardcore Henry yet, because it's like that yeah. POV gimmickry, right? And I'm just like, I'm not, I feel like those movies have a hard time sustaining that. And I mean, this is only like 80 some minutes, right? Yeah, but it's not POV like Hardcore Henry in that there are shots of Frank Grillo, oh, right? Okay. Like it does show him like talking on No, but phone. I mean, I was just wondering about that. The action sequences are all POV then? Yeah, but, it, you know, but it, it it's not just like a locked shot of the of a camera like facing out the car window and driving. Like it'll cut to him shifting the gear oh, and then okay, it will cut okay. to the wheels. Then it will cut to like um, a close-up of his face and then it will cut back. Okay, so the- it never really leaves the... confinement of the car even in the action sequence yeah i mean like it opens up in that you can see the road and stuff okay but it just never kind of like the camera's always you you feel like the camera's always around the car somehow okay so like the movie opens for example like where we're introduced to grillo it's like the the opening shot and this isn't spoiling anything but the opening shot is like a static shot of of uh, facing out the car window and this guy comes into the frame gets in the car pulls out pulls the car out of a garage and it's like the shot doesn't move so it's really kind of cool and then it parks and then you see grillo's character down the street and he walks over to the car and then it cuts to him oh, okay. so it's, it's just pretty neat it's it's really it's really kind of cool but and i'm kind of bummed out that it was done before in lock because if this had never been done before i would have thought it was really cool and a bit of me feels like i would rip that off a little bit but still i I would totally recommend this it was just for the pacing and everything like it was really held my interest and i was really curious as to what was going to happen and i you know the stakes were high and i bought into it and uh and i really liked the girl too the the his daughter i thought she was great so yeah totally recommend it from what i understand lock is basically um, Tom Hardy's character driving around and getting threatening phone calls. Yeah. So I think it's a little bit of a different tone, like you said. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a different tone yeah. than what I'm getting out of yeah. that as well. Oh. And that sounds more like a like almost like a drama than than kind of an action movie. That yeah, so I, I, w- I don't know how much I would say that they're the same idea, really. I mean... Tying it to the car is same kind of the gimmick. same idea, but I, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know how that gimmick, it might be different. I don't know. I haven't seen I Locke. watched the trailer for Locke, and I it totally looks similar. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Wheelman is one I'd probably recommend. All two. right. <laughs> um, let's keep it streaming. Oh, wow. But uh, this isn't Netflix. All right. So uh, I, I bought a new TV. 
couple days ago. And, uh, you know, I wanted to get a smart TV. And then I was like, well, I'm going to get this Roku TV. Just, you know, because I've heard good things about Roku. And then after I got it home and unpacked it and everything, I was like, holy shit, with Roku, I can get Shudder. So I was mm. like, I was so excited. I signed up for the trials on Shudder. And I watched a movie that isn't on any other streaming service. It's not a Shudder original, but I've never seen it anywhere. And that's a movie from uh, 2014 called Lake Nowhere. I've heard of this. Yeah. And uh, what this is, is it's made by a film collective. Directors are uh, Christopher Phelps and Maxim von Skoy. And it's one of those ones where <sighs> these are horror fans who are taking their inspiration from 80s movies, like video store kind of culture. Because it's structured to be a retro throwback to like what Astron 6 and Jason Eisner are doing right now. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, it's supposed to be like a found slasher movie from the 80s and you know it's got the vhs degradation on the screen like the tracking issues and all that stuff and it starts out with like this fake commercial for a beer company like a fake beer company there's a fake beer commercial there's this trailer for this trauma like movie called harvest man which Mm. is about this like farmer who gets like this toxic chemical spilled in its water which makes all the monsters all the plants come to life and start attacking people which is a pretty rad trailer i gotta say and uh but then it kind of settles down into like this slasher movie meets evil dead kind of thing with this really loose plot of cliches like these people who are total cliches heading to this cabin and falling victim to this mass killer who walks who wanders around the cabin with like this mass made of like tree bark and leaves and there's all these point of view shots of them watching them smoking pot and all that stuff. But at the same time, totally unexplained. One of the, one of them shows up fucking possessed or something and starts like attacking them. He's buck naked. He's attacking them. He's slamming their heads against the wall. So they're dealing with their friends being possessed and the slasher being outside the cabin. And it sounds more exciting than it actually is. Sounds great. Like, it it sounds good. But my (laughs) problem is, like, I thought it was a good effort. I appreciated the throwback qualities. No, but but you know what I mean? Like, I had an ex-girlfriend say that to me once. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know. Like, what it is, is like, they they nailed the tone they were going for, for the most part. Um, I really enjoyed the fake trailer i enjoyed the vhs tracking issues i enjoyed that once in a one time it cut into like where it looked like they filmed over a home movie and stuff like that i like that stuff the problem i had with the actual lake nowhere part of it was that it didn't make any sense Hmm. and i didn't know what was going on most of the time and that was the problem. Like, sure, you've got some pretty cool gore effects. You're throwing some skin out there. I can appreciate this as a fan of 80s horror movies. But when I don't really know what's going on, it's kind of like, well, you're kind of losing me a bit. Mm-hmm. Like, you could have made it a straight-ahead slasher movie. You didn't have to take your love of Friday the 13th or Madman or something like that. I'd say Madman, that 1981 movie, because there is a character who's killed the same way as someone is in Batman. So I think that's where the slasher inspiration came from. But then taking your inspiration of Evil Dead 2 and trying to jam those both together in like a 45-minute runtime. Because it's only a 51-minute movie total. Oh, wow. So you're you're trying to jam too much into yeah. it. Why was Be- it so short? It's I weird. don't know. It, just, it was 51 minutes. Huh. But you're like jamming so much into it 
that you're losing me. Like I'm a, I, I liked your efforts. I think it's a solidly made calling card. Like if you're going to use this to get yourself work in the genre, making feature length movies, good for you. You did a good job. It's just, it didn't work for me as entertainment particularly. I marveled at it. I was like, oh, they did a good job with that. Oh, that's a good shot. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. But it never gelled for me as entertainment particularly. Right. So I'm not, I'm not writing these guys off. I think they could, they're going to do something really entertaining once they get to feature length. And I'm glad I watched this, but I am also sort of getting tired of this VHS throwback that's going on within the genre right now. I find there's a lot of indie filmmakers who are doing this, Hmm. who weren't really around for this era or like we're at the tail end of this era. And I'm like, you know, you're doing a good job trying to capture that moment. But do we really need that moment to be captured when a lot of your audience aren't even going to remember that time frame? They're not going to remember what video stores are, you know? So why do you want to kind of give that vibe when it's only going to be the older genre fans like us who are going to quite get what you're going for? You know what I mean? Well, I'm kind of glad stuff like this is being made. I mean, I, I, yeah, like I'm, yeah, I I still want to see stuff like just kind of like the same, the same way. I'm really glad movies like Grindhouse are coming out still. Yeah. I mean, that's a while ago now, but even like the wheel man, like, I mean, I just like how they are doing throwback stuff, even though I I get what you're saying, but I, I, I wouldn't want to discourage people from doing no this. no no I, I i honestly think these guys have yeah. something good will come from these guys in the future once they get to that feature length yeah i just like i said it was more for me it was more of a i'm really enjoying technically what you're doing but i'm not quite entertained enough right and that's that was my main issue with it all right so yeah lake nowhere all right all right i'm gonna bring this one up because i um I keep wondering if I should bring it up, and I'm going to, because I know you've seen it. Okay. But I know you're going to be like, fuck, why are you bringing this up? But I did kind of like this movie, and it's been long enough that um, that I, I think that it's okay to bring it up, and um, <laughs> it's just a nice little movie. It's been long enough? Well, I, I think that it... I, I, I'm just not sure why you didn't bring it up when you watched it. Okay. It's a movie called Necessary Roughness from oh, okay. 1991. Okay. So this is a... The reason I'm bringing this up is just because I find sports movies. There was a, an era of these in, I'd say, the 80s to 90s. Late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. And they just don't really make them like this anymore. Like, I find they make them... The ones nowadays are just overly sentimental in a way, but I feel like this one had a cross between that sentimentality and kind of the 80s, 90s comedy. Yeah, so we're like talking like Wildcats, yeah, Major like that, League. that stuff. And I really liked sports movies of that time period. Yeah. And this fits right in there. And I've never seen it before. And I happened to watch it because it was in your uh, to be uh, cast away pile. So, yeah. um, so this is directed by Stan Dragotti who um, did movies like Mr. Mom and one of my favorite horror comedies, Love at First Bite, right. which I'm sure doesn't stand the test of time <laughs> at all. Well, he also made The Man with One Red Shoe with Tom Hanks, didn't he? He did. Yeah. He did. I saw that in the drive-in. I saw that recently, and it doesn't hold up very well. I can long. imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so this stars um, Scott Bakula from uh, Quantum Leap and... Uh, that new CSI, is it a CS? No, NCIS uh, New Orleans. He's on that right now. Yeah, one of those. Yeah. 
Um, I never really think of this guy too. Oh, he was in Lord of Illusions as well. Hmm. Never really think of this guy too much though. And I thought he did a really good job and I thought he was quite good casting for this role. So he's, um, what happens is there's a, there's a college football team that's like disgraced. I can't remember the reasoning there. I think they were cheating or something. Doping. Doping. yeah. Yeah. So anyway, their team basically gets the, the college loses their football team and they give the team, um, they say, you guys could, can try again they give the team to a, a, a new coach played by hector elizondo and he's like a, a kind of a tv commentator kind of an over the hill coach who's brought back to this college to try and uh try and get the team going again yeah he but, was like a championship coach back in the day yeah so he's, he's but he's yeah. he's like seeing if he can like if you know he's he's sort of given taking the job as kind of a challenge so the rule is, is that he can't hire any of the players that were kicked off back, and he's and the people that ha- are on the team have to be students. So he's not really left with much. So it is it is a real challenge for him. Um, so he um, he recruits Robert Loggia as uh, his assistant coach, and this guy's always a great a character actor. He's always good. You know, horror fans will know him from Innocent Blood, uh, but he's been in tons of stuff, and he's he's good. And I thought he really again really fit the role. So I thought the casting so far has was pretty perfect for now for a movie like this for now okay (laughs) it gets worse now the um so elizondo's trying to get the team started um loggia remembers that bacula used to be this great quarterback and then sort of gave it all up to go work on a farm so he goes out to the farm to recruit bacula to come back to college Bacula's probably late 30s, 40 at this time. So, you know, he's, of course, the fish out of water in college, trying to, like, go to the dorm with all the young kids while he's, uh, you know, a 40-year-old man, and there's all that stuff going on. But he's still an awesome quarterback. So they've got their quarterback, and then they start recruiting their team. So they get guys like um, Jason Bateman in an early role, um, is one of the teammates. Andrew Brynarski, who... um, played uh leatherface in the uh, texas chainsaw massacre was it Le- yeah yeah it was leatherface because he he played te- leatherface in the texas chainsaw massacre remake and then came under fire when um gunner hansen died for saying that that uh he was a better leatherface yeah. than gunner hansen yeah. And, yeah but he uh he had a big role in this um sinbad the um the comedian i actually don't like him but i liked him in this oh, i didn't really really yeah i thought he i thought he was pretty good um, there's a big Samoan guy. There's, of course, the guy who can't catch. Um, yeah, and I, I, I don't know. I thought it was a pretty decent team. You're forgetting the worst, worst in the whole bunch. See, I think we're going to disagree about this. Kathy Maybe. Ireland. Okay, so yes, Kathy. She was Ireland. not good in this. I liked her in this. Really? Uh, so I'm like Kathy Ireland. If you don't know, was a big supermodel at the time. She was like a Sports Illustrated Sports swimsuit model. Yeah, and she was a big deal at the time. And they can't find a kicker for their team, so they um, she's a soccer player for a women's soccer team, and she uh, she can kick a ball really far, and uh, so they hire her as the kicker, and she's the first, uh, I think she's the first woman kicker in uh, college college uh, football, and I kind of like that whole angle. Um, so, what didn't you like about her? I just she didn't do no much. personality at all. I kind of liked her. Yeah, I just think she's very bland and. She didn't really deliver her lines very well. I've seen her in Alien from L.A., that Albert Pune movie, and she's worse than that, though. Yeah, I mean, I, she's not an actress, but no. I, I thought I felt like she was 
not given enough to really fuck it up. I thought she was kind of cute, actually. Uh, yeah, no. Really? She took you right out of it? Didn't eh? do it for me at all. Did she ruin the movie for you? She didn't, ruin, like the she mo- did. she didn't ruin the movie. I just don't think she belonged in it, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, I mean, the whole the whole gag was that it was this hot girl yeah. who could kick the ball and then had to show up all the guys, and she did. And I thought from that perspective, I thought it was kind of a cool character. Um it also had uh, Rob Schneider playing the announcer. Didn't like him at all. I never like Rob Schneider. <laughs> yeah. And Harley Jane Kozak played the uh, uh, like love interest for Bacula. She was in um, Arachnophobia and uh, the upcoming Kino Lorber release, The Taking of Beverly Hills with Ken Wall. That's already out. Oh, it's out? Yeah. Oh, yeah I did see. I saw it tonight. Um, so, yeah. But, I mean, I, overall, I kind of I, I, I thought this fit right into the genre. Um, I very predictable, but um, I liked it quite a bit. I, I didn't dislike this movie. Yeah. I just didn't think it was like there was enough on it for me to actually talk about. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like, I mean, I, I was surprised because I know you like sports movies and I also know you really like movies of this era. So I'm surprised you or you're not more into this one. But... That's one of the ones, even when it first came out, like around that time, because I was big into these movies like yeah. at that time. Uh, I remember it came out on VHS and I just, I watched it and I just was like, Pfft. Who cares? Yeah. And then the only reason I bought the disc was because I got it for like a dollar. And I was like, maybe I'll give this another spin and and see if it's any good. And I did like it better when I rewatched it. Like within this last year, I think I rewatched it. I did like it better, but I still don't think it's a very memorable movie. Yeah. Like if I'm going to watch sports comedies from the era, I am going to watch Major League hands down like over and over again. Yeah. I'm not going to watch Necessary Roughness. And maybe it's because I haven't seen a lot of these two. I mean, I did know it did, it did, it was pretty cliched for what it is. Yeah. But I, I, I thought it was fun. I mean, I wasn't like, like there's been some movies I've watched recently from your pile <laughs> where I've turned them off. I've just been like, I can't yeah. do no, this. No, I, I didn't. And, dis- and I thought this was pretty good. So. I didn't dislike it. It's just, I just find it to be very vanilla. Yeah, and I thought it would be a little more football-y. Yeah. I also didn't like Harley Jane Kozak. I thought she was not a good... I didn't like her character at all. I didn't feel like it was someone Bacula's character would go for. And uh, I really hated the Dean. Um, the guy who plays... Like, there's, of course, all these movies have a Dean that has it in for the He wants to and, sabotage the sports and team. And he just did not fit. Because he was like an over-the-top Dean that... Um, belonged in more of a sex comedy like revenge of the nerds or something than a movie like this and um i thought the football scenes were okay but i felt like they could have used a little more suspense but overall i i did i enjoyed this way more than i thought and i can't believe how much i've talked about it because i was just (laughs) gonna kind of bring it by in passing but uh it's still going i thought it was okay i thought i thought it was a decent little flick i don't know if i'd go out of my way but if i if i saw it on on the on um streaming or something i might check it out again yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> I don't know where to go now. Um, let's just get this one out of the way. <laughs> I watched. <laughs> I, I'm not saying it as a negative connotation. It's just it's such a silly movie to talk about, and it's a movie that's based on a on a on a two minute viral video, but they took absolutely positively nothing out of the viral video. And made the movie. And that's a movie called Badass from 2012 oh starring Danny Trejo. I can't believe you watched this. You're not going to believe that I actually kind of liked it. I can't believe there's three of them. I kind of liked it. Really? Yeah. 
<laughs> so the viral video I'm talking about is there's this video that went viral where it was a, an older man on a bus being harassed by some guy and he gets up and punches the guy out. So, you know, they took that basic moment and had Danny Trejo's character, you know, he's on a bus and, you know, the people on the bus are being harassed by these like skinheads and Danny Trejo stands up to him and beats the shit out of them and becomes like kind of a folk hero, kind of like, you know, Buford Puster and walking tallish kind of thing. Right. Like, thing is he's this older guy he went to vietnam he's a vietnam vet he's like kind of down on his luck he's danny trejo he just chills doesn't do much beats the crap out of these guys on the bus walking off the bus with a shirt that says i am a motherfucker on the back i'm like okay uh, well, now i know what kind of guy you are danny trejo and then becomes like kind of this like folk hero clean up the neighborhood kind of guy you know he'll he'll go around the neighborhood and bad guys will show up and he'll beat him up Okay. And then he will, the next scene will cut to him waiting for a bus. It's fucking hilarious. <laughs> like he'll literally go into this thing where the, the criminals are, punch them all out. And then the next scene is of him stepping onto the bus, waiting for the bus on the curb and then stepping on the bus <laughs> and then going on to the next scene. I'm just like, the guy's a folk hero. People can't fucking drive him to beat people <laughs> up. He has to ride the bus all the time. Right. It's kind of funny, just the context they put it in. But, I mean, Danny Trejo is a likable guy. Yeah. Like, in everything. I know you hated that 20 Feet Below movie and everything. Oh, I hated that movie. But I think Danny Trejo is a likable guy. I know he does these kind of movies because it's what he, it's just what he does. It's what he gets paid to do. I actually didn't mind Badass. Like, it's standard revenge-type thriller because it's him being a folk hero. It's him cleaning up the neighborhood. But also it's a revenge movie because his Vietnam buddy gets killed. So he goes after the guys who d who are responsible. So it's a revenge flick too. It's got one scene of Ron Perlman as the mayor. And it's a good scene because Ron Perlman's character is a fucking dick. But he's in one scene in the entire movie. Ah, oh, too bad. You've got... You know, you've got him going around beating people up. You've got a pretty sweet montage moment where it's like Danny Trail getting suited up to go kick ass on the street. So he's like strapping on his baseball bat and doing all this. And in the meantime, there's this rap song, this really bad rap song playing in the background going, I'm a badass. I'm a badass. I'm a motherfucking badass. And I'm laughing to myself because I'm like, this is fucking ridiculous, right? And then it gets even more ridiculous towards the ending. You know, there's a bad guy who shows up who's a total ripoff of like odd job in the Bond films <laughs> because it's a guy or any kind of Bond villain because it's a guy with a British accent who has a bowler hat. And right. he's like walking around and Danny Trio beats him up. You know, it's got a few gore moments, which were actually quite unexpected. Like it's got a really fucking gruesome scene involving a, a, a garbage disposal. That oh, I wasn't okay. expecting. Um, it's got like a lot of silly action, especially in the finale where there's like a whole bunch of over the top shit involving buses. And, it, you know, it, it, it's fun for what it is. It's a 90 minute mindless action movie where Danny Trejo beats people up. He gets to say one liners once in a while and you just like, ah, it's Danny Trejo. He makes me smile. You know, it's All kind right, of I'll one watch of those it. movies. I'll check that out. It's, um, there are two sequels, like you mentioned where they brought Danny Glover in to be his buddy in both of them. So there's Badass 2, Badasses, which I also have sitting at home, 
and then there's badasses on the bayou, which I'm kind of excited to see. I got to admit, I wasn't. I went into this with low expectations, and I came out of it entertained. And that's how you have to approach badass. Okay, so is this your recommendation to me for the week? Sure. Okay, then I will it, find it. it and watch it's it. here. Oh, is it here? It's here. You can Perfect. watch it. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone wins. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've already seen Shockman. That would be my recommendation for everybody for the week, but that's besides the point. All right. How can I redeem myself after a nece- uh, necessary roughness? I don't think you have to redeem yourself for a necessary roughness. It's just... Well, I think I'll follow it up by defending the new Baywatch movie. All right. <laughs> Fair enough, because I have no fucking interest in this movie whatsoever, I don't think. All right. Baywatch 2017. I had no interest in the TV show either, so... Directed by Seth Gordon, who did Horrible Bosses, Identity Thief, with Jason Bateman. You fucking lost me. (laughs) Melissa McCarthy. You've lost me. And he also directed the documentary The King of Kongs, which I do want to see. King of Kong? That one about the guy who is really good at Donkey Kong? Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah, I heard that's pretty good. Sounds really fun. Anyway, so this movie has been criticized to death over the last year. Um, Obviously, this is another San Andreas moment, isn't it? So it's a remake (laughs) of the TV show. So just to put into context, I've not seen the TV show. I know about the TV. I've never seen. Wow. So I know about the TV show. I know that David Hasselhoff's in it. I know David Charvet's in it. I know. The the Pam list, Anderson, Pam Anderson, Yasmin Bleeth, Eric Alaniak, yeah. blah blah blah. I know I know about the TV show, right? But I've I've just never seen it. So watching this, all I really knew going in was that The Rock is playing the David Hasselhoff character, and the other thing I knew is that it was R rated. So I'm like, okay, they're taking a really che- cheesy TV show that everyone knows was cheesy. That everyone knows was kind of not very good. But that's in the eyes of whom, right? Like, for me to say something's not very good, it's really, really got to be not very good. Like, a lot of the things I watch are not very good. So what I'm trying to get at here is, if you're going to criticize this movie, what the fuck were you expecting? Like, you know, like I, I was reading reviews after I watched this online and like people are like saying, oh, the comedy is sophomoric and oh, you know, it's just it's just a shitty movie. Like, well, fuck, it's a movie. It's an R-rated comedy based on a shitty TV show. Like, I'm not really sure what you were thinking you were going to get here. They wanted a serious drama about saving lives on the ocean, Josh. I think some people did want that. They wanted an ocean action movie. Maybe because The Rock's in it. But I think I think everyone here was self-aware of what they were doing. And I knew damn well going into this what I was going to be watching. It was a fucking, like, pretty much a sex comedy on the beach based on a cheesy TV show. And that's exactly what it was. Um... And I thought it was pretty fun. Uh, It's got... um, Okay, so we've got... um, What's his name? Zac Efron is playing the David Charvet character. I don't really know much about this guy. I know he was in, like, High School Musical. I know he was a bit of a heartthrob. I do know he's been in some other things that... He was in Neighbors with Seth Rogen. Yeah, and that 17 again was supposed to be okay. And, like, I don't don't not like this guy. I just don't know anything about him. I just... 
he just gives off a a bad vibe to me. Like kind of like that frat boy douchebag kind of vibe to me. Right. And that's yeah. what he's playing in this movie. Yeah. And he's arrogant and kind of a dick and that's and he was fine. That's he did what he was supposed to do. Um I don't know if that's what David Charvet's character was like on the original show, because I've never seen the original show, but for what his, what was going on here, we had the rock playing that David Hasselhoff, the older lifeguard who's knows what's going on and knows how to do things. We've got this young kid coming in who like thinks he's better than him, blah, blah, blah. So we've setting up a good rivalry right off the bat. I mean, this is very typical of movies like this. Um, we've got Alexander Daddario playing summer, uh, this is the um, Nicole Eggert character from the original show. Again, don't know really if she fits the role or not. I like Alexandra Daddario. She was in San Andreas with The Rock. I thought she was good in that. Uh, she was in Texas Chainsaw 3D. I thought she was good in that. She's not a great actress, but she's 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 nice to look at, and she does the job. Um, Kelly Rohrbach plays CJ, who's the the Pam Anderson character from the original. I thought she was awesome in this. I thought she was... Uh, she was hot. She was pretty kick-ass. She got the shit done um, and very likable. So I liked her quite a bit. Um, we've got a kind of a chubby guy who gets onto the onto the Baywatch team. He's like the comic relief. Uh, he had some pretty funny scenes. Um, probably the more more annoying end of the spectrum here, but uh, thought he was fine. Um, and then this movie was just kind of it was it was a lot of dumb sex comedy for the first half. And then it got into kind of a bit more of like the rock type action as they're like trying to take down a drug dealer. It is what it is. I mean, this movie is pretty much exactly what I thought it was going to be. I got to say it was pretty weird seeing the rock and um, Zach Efron drawing at, dropping F-bombs through the whole movie. Um, there was a pretty scene, uh, pretty funny scene where uh, in a morgue that involved not only like body fluids dripping everywhere, but also Zach Efron having to handle a dead dead man's cock um that i thought was pretty funny uh there's lots of bikini action the uh, the other action scenes are cheesy all the cheesy action shit i watch and especially coming from a guy who just reviewed badass i don't think we can be too hard on this fucking movie and i was super entertained by it and it was almost two hours long i thought it was i thought it was pretty fun granted i only paid 69 cents for this 69 69 cents like of course i know what i'm buying that's what, like, literally, that's what the price was on streaming. It was. I saw it. You said it's coming on Netflix? It is, yeah. I thought it was pretty fun. I might watch it. I don't know. You know I'm not going to, like, a lot of people are going to be listening to me right now going, what are you fucking talking about? All I'm saying is, you know, please just keep in mind a lot of the movies I review. <laughs> and, of course, I can't, like, knock this just because. Like, it's, it's kind of like all the B-movies we watch and all the stupid sex comedies. Like... But it's set now. I mean, Badass. There's way better ones than this, yes. But for what it was, I I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty fun. So there you go. All right. No no re- no reply. Well, <laughs> I might watch it if yeah. it's on Netflix, but I wouldn't pay money to see it. I don't know. I just wasn't that interested in it when it came out. It was just like, eh, why are they doing it? I think that's the thing. If it, would, if it wasn't being like a, a sex comedy that wasn't called Baywatch... I probably would have been more into it, but attaching the name Baywatch to it made me go, ah, I don't know if I'm into this. I think that's the problem. Is that I think that they branded it with the Baywatch brand and, and tied it in that I was just kind of like, no, I never watched the show. Why would I watch the movie? 
True, and I, I guess I was just kind of wanting to see a sex comedy on a beach with The Rock because The Rock pretty much does everything good as far as I'm concerned. Like every time I, I watch a rock movie, I know exactly what I'm getting and I usually have fun with it. I know you disagree, but well, I, I've loved all the rock movies. Faster man. That was not good. That wasn't, fun. that wasn't a fun movie though. Yeah, that's true. I guess that wasn't a fun movie. Anything he does. That's a fun movie. Like San Andreas was fun. Um, uh, even that one, the rundown was pretty fun. Like, no, that was okay. I think when he's doing a fun movie and, and the, he's having fun with it, I think the rocks pretty, pretty solid. I think when he starts trying to be serious, doesn't work. Well, dude's a wrestler. I mean, yeah, exactly. He's got to He's got to have that. He's got to have that built into him to begin with, I guess. And I, if I'm going to watch this story too, I'd rather be watching the rock than David Hasselhoff. Because I, I really don't dude, like don't him. Don't hassle the Hoff. Even though this movie has kind of made me go and want to go watch Baywatch. No, don't do no, it. No, I really got to do. Don't do it. I was thinking it. It's kind of up, kind of up my alley. Like it's a cheesy TV show. The <laughs> have you seen it? This have you is going to be it? this is going to be terrible to say, but the only time that I watched Baywatch was there's an episode where some kid who's like this 12 year old kid, his dad is a is a midget. And he's upset that his dad's a midget. And it's about the the lifeguards trying to help the dad to win over his son's affection. And I watched it simply because I thought it'd be hilarious. And it was pretty hilarious. I want to watch that. It was pretty <laughs> fucking hilarious. How can you not want to watch that? I did watch of that. Of course you did. I heard dude, about it. That's like, okay, amazing. I, I got to watch this now. Yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm kind of in oh, now. Dude, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Any, okay. I maybe I'll watch it when it streams. We'll see. Um, my next selection is a movie that I had not seen since it first came out on VHS in 1988. It's a biblical horror movie. So it's a biblical apocalypse horror movie called The Seventh Sign starring Demi Moore. Oh my God. <laughs> a pregnant Demi Moore, her husband played by Michael Bean from Aliens and Terminator, and... A steely-eyed, seal-breaking Jürgen Prochnow. Oh, my God. So <laughs> the basic of this movie is Jürgen Prochnow is this mysterious character who's going around, and he's got these ancient scripts, and he's breaking the stone seal on them, and it's causing plagues and bad events to happen. So, you know, this movie is really ambitious at first because it opens with a scene set in Haiti where, you know, he breaks the seal and all of a sudden all the fish in the ocean die. It's followed by a scene in Israel where they where you know, part of the desert has been iced. <laughs> Shut up. Where part of the desert's <laughs> been iced over. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. It's got some ambition going for it. Then it settles down to a very slower-paced movie about Demi Moore about to have her first baby. They have a like a one of those coach houses on their property they want to rent. Jurgen Prochnow shows up, rents the coach house. It's got something to do with Demi Moore and her unborn baby being part of this prophecy, being the final seal that's going to cause the apocalypse, yada, yada, yada. Michael Bean's a defense lawyer at the same time, and he's kind of defending a murderer, and it all starts to tie together by the end. And I didn't really care that much, to be honest. It gets really silly at the end. It's got a lot of boring biblical stuff in it. I don't really like biblical thrillers that much, admittedly. Yeah. But I was just like, well, I'll watch it. Whatever. It might be okay. It's got a scene in it where Demi Moore has a naked pregnant bath. And I was like, 
Is this before that magazine cover or after? You know, she had that one, yeah, yeah. the Vanity Fair cover where she she had her picture taken pregnant and naked, where she had her hand over her, you know, her pri- her top and bottom, and then the belly jutting out, and it was controversial at the time. Yeah, it was actually in 1991, and this movie came out in '98, and nobody oh. said anything when this movie came out, so I don't get it. Um, the thing is, is that it was just a standard supernatural biblical thriller it tries really hard to tie all these subplots they've thrown out there together but it's still messy through the whole thing you know the people who wrote this put pseudonyms over their names i don't know if that was because they weren't happy with their script or if they just figured let's use a pen name they also wrote the movie bless the child in 2000 which is another biblical horror movie starring kim basinger um like i said High ambition at the beginning, <laughs> slowish midsection. I thought Demi Moore was actually pretty good in this because I watched two Demi Moore movies from the 80s in the same week because <laughs> I watched this and I watched about last night. Right. And she was actually pretty likable in both movies. Um, Jurgen Prochnow is a pretty good villain because he just has that look where he's just staring at the camera right. or he's staring off in the distance. He's pretty good. But Demi Moore's character is a terrible landlord because she always goes snooping in this thing and she finds these seals and she accidentally breaks them by stepping on it. I mean, you dumb bitch. You're getting closer to the seventh sign and that is when your baby is going to die. Don't you realize you're snooping around? You should know this. And of course, there's a fedora-wearing priest who shows up to try to almost save the day, much like The Exorcist or any of these other biblical is horror movies. Is it Rutger Hauer? No, it's not Rutger Hauer. If it was, this movie would have been way better. <laughs> it seems like it should be Rutger Hauer. It would be way better if it was Rutger Hauer. <laughs> so, I'm not saying The Seventh Sign is bad. I'm just saying it's one of those movies where if you saw it when you were a kid and you remember it being okay, that's all you need to remember. Okay. I didn't need to revisit this. But because I paid a dollar for it, I was like, sure, let's check it out. So it is what it is. Biblical horror doesn't do it for me. It might do it for for other people. But as it is, it was an okay time. I didn't mind the 90-whatever minutes I spent with it. But I will never watch it again. All right. So that's the seventh sign. Okay. So that's that's probably the... uh, For me, that's probably my... Least favorite movie of this episode. How many more do you have? I have three more. I have five more. Really? Yeah. Okay, then do two in a row. Okay. Okay, the first one I'm going to do is called... (laughs) Twisted Sisters. (laughs) Is this a... Oh, shit, dude. Is this like one of those old school fucking screeners? Uh, no. No, this is a Dollarama. Oh, okay, okay, go on. But, <laughs> okay, this is from 2006. Okay. This is directed by a guy named Wolfgang Bould. Okay. And it stars a woman named Fiona, Fiona Horsey. Now, I was like, why do I recognize these names? The reason I recognize these names is because Wolfgang Bould directed a movie starring Fiona Horsey uh, called Penetration Angst, <laughs> aka Angst, that I really quite enjoyed. Okay, and that was kind of that was a movie about a 
kind of like teeth. It was about a woman with a killer vagina. Okay. That was quite fun. Um, and that was one of those shitty screeners from like MTI or something. I thought this Twisted Sisters was an MTI screener too. Oh, okay. Maybe I have an MTI screener, but I bought it a dollar out. Okay. Anyway, it's... um. So this Penetration Angst movie was was pretty fun and pretty crazy. Like, it had really good acting. It was well-directed. It had a, a woman with a killer vagina. And then it really went off the rails into, like, kind of a caper thriller at the end. And it was quite fun, and I, I liked it quite a bit. So I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool that these guys have, like, reunited for this movie. Um, so this one stars Fiona Horsey as in a dual role as uh, twins, uh, Jennifer and Nora. Hence the Twisted Sisters name. Exactly. And it's the the one is like the Jennifer is like the nice twin. She's like, you know, she's, uh, you know, uh, with her boyfriend and she's going to get married and she finds out she's pregnant and everything's pretty going pretty good for her. But what's happening is that there's dudes that are being murdered. Um, they're like with with this woman that looks exactly like Jennifer going around taking these dudes home publicly bringing them home and then killing them uh like the first one she uh stabs to death in the cock the second one what yeah she like just you know has sex with they, she has sex with them all first just let's put so that he out. stabs her with his cock and then she stabs him in the cock well don't be so crude mr baywatch not want to watch her um so yeah, I guess you could say it that way. It's kind of like symbolism, but I wasn't really getting too far into that. I was just like, oh, she's naked and she's fucking the guy and now she's stabbing his cock. Anyway, um, so the first one's the cock stabbing. The okay. next guy she fucks, she, um, I don't really know how this worked, but <laughs> she somehow lit a firework off in his ass and what is then, this jackass? And then the his fuck? cock was mutilated. So I don't really understand what happened. The fire, the force of the firework pushed forward through his that body. That might be what happened. It was weird. Anyway, I didn't really know what was going on in that firework scene. It, it was a genital mutilation in this fucking weird. movie. It was weird. Oh, and then another guy gets cock stabbed, and then um, eventually, what happens is I guess they couldn't call this movie cock stab. <laughs> It could be called. Cock I would totally Stab. fucking watch this movie. It's called for the Cock first Stab. three murders. The movie. It was definitely genital mutilation. Although we didn't see any cock, um, unlike Baywatch. Um, so then, eventually, what happens is is uh, Jennifer discovers that she's got this evil sister running around that looks exactly like her, and the cops also figure this out. So Jennifer decides to get the hell out of town with her with her fiance to a country house and of course the uh evil twin figures this out and goes to the country house as well and then end, ends up like kind of kidnapping jennifer and then taking over her identity and it gets pretty cool that way too with more sex scenes anyway you just picture the news headlines before they take off the cops are looking for the serial killer They're like cock stabber on the loose extra extra <laughs> it's probably true and yeah like first in the first movie Hold with this, junk. in penetration egg she's like eating cocks and this one she's stabbing cocks hmm. so yeah i don't know i think these two have issues <laughs> anyway it's um it's actually a pretty fun movie like i um I started watching it, and the, the the disc I had was, like, not anamorphic and looked low budget, just like Penetration Angst. But it actually held my, like, grabbed me pretty quick, and I was I was interested throughout. Uh, based 
that's a lot of that's based on the fact that Fiona Horsey is a really good actress for this type of movie. Like, fuck, if, if seriously, people, if 84 episodes into this, you don't know my taste, <laughs> and I ne- seriously need to every time say, like, <laughs> when I say someone's a good actress, I'm not talking about, like, fucking Catherine Hepburn, okay? Like, <laughs> they're just carrying movies like this well. And I think she's really good. She's, uh, um, I think she, uh, she's one of these actors that, um, I buy into really quickly. I, I, um, sympathize with, with quite quickly and she's really attractive um, she's um, obviously in a role like this isn't afraid um, of what she's doing so like you kind of never know what she's going to do you know she's not afraid to take her clothes off she's not to be afraid to cock stab <laughs> so like you just kind of never know what a woman and I and this Wolfgang Bold guy I, I think he's pretty cool too these two have made two other movies together seriously One's called um, Cockstab 2. Love Sick, Sick Love. Uh, I don't really know what it's about. And then there's a newer one called Dirty White Lies. Now, Fiona Horsey, she decided to get away from acting because she was starting to like build a bit of a rep here as a genre star and then decided to move to, I think, Columbia and start in a soap opera of all things. But in recent years, she's done a new movie with Wolfgang Bold. Now, Wolfgang Bold is an interesting cat, too, because this guy's an older dude. He's like, I think, 60 or 70 when these movies were being made in the, in the mid-2000s. So he's kind of like, he's kind of like fucking uh, Flesh for, or what's that one? He's like the old, the Jess Franco end of the career kind of movies, it sounds like to me. Kind of. And he, um, but in the 70s. Like Tender Flesh and stuff. Exactly. But these are way better. Oh, okay. These okay. movies are. Quite, I fucking hope so. These movies are quite good. Oh, like okay. For for horror B movies, I think these both Penetration Angst and this one, I enjoyed both of them quite okay. a bit, okay. mainly due to Fiona Horsey. So just let let me make sure that's known. If she wasn't the star of these, I don't know if I'd like them as much. Um, but back to Wolfgang Bold, he did a documentary in the seventies called Punk in London that was quite quite popular at the time he also did a documentary about hank williams called i'll never get out of this world alive in the 70s um and this is like a german dude like very weird that but he seemed really dialed into the music scene he also made a movie in the 80s starring nina like the 99 luft balloons woman is a star of a comedy directed by this guy that i am now seeking out i might add so what's that um, called it's called uh Oh, I just wrote Nina movie. I can't oh. remember what it's called, but I uh, I am going to try and find it. But um I like this quite a bit. I I thought this was good and I'm I'm going to I'm going to seek out the other two mainly cuz I really like Fiona Horsey and I think these two make a good uh collaboration team. So um I like this. I, I think if you see it at Dollarama or or somewhere cheap for a couple of bucks, it's definitely worth a pickup. So that's called Twisted Sisters. Jesus. How do I follow up cockstabbing? Actually, you've got another one, so go. You told me to do two in a row. Yeah, go two. How do you follow up cockstabbing? Well, I'm going to segue. How can you segue cockstabbing? Wait, how many more do I have? You said you have four more One, two. Oh, shit, I do. Okay, so the next one. You're going to segue from cockstabbing to... I'm going to stop cock. I'm going to cock. I've said cock so much tonight. You should just say cock a bunch of times in a row just to get out of your system. (laughs) Hold on. You should just what? Can't you see it? No. What happened to your beard? It's coming out the top. Oh yeah. <laughs> Sorry, my my beard's uh getting excited. Got a bit of foam. 
You should just say cock a bunch of times to get out of your system. Okay. Cock, no. cock, 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 cock. No, because I'm going to segue from, from Twisted Sisters into a Jess Franco movie. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Sounds like a, I just mentioned Jess Franco, so it makes sense. I know. So this one's called Christina, Princess of Eroticism, a.k.a. A Virgin Among the Living Dead. Okay. I know it under that title. Okay. So this one came out from Redemption. Um, they put out a Blu-ray of this. Um, now, most people do know it as Virgin Among yeah, the Living Dead that's or the, title I know. the Invisible Dead, I think, was another title for it. And I've never seen this movie, so I decided I'm going to watch both versions of this. So I watched the Christina Princess of Eroticism, which is Jess Franco's preferred version. And then A Virgin Among the Living Dead was a recut version with a bunch of added footage shot by Jean Roland. Um, so I'm going to just start off by reviewing Christina Princess of Eroticism because it's not a zombie movie at all. Um, this is a movie about, um, uh, I've always kind of written Jess Franco off as being a, uh, just cause I haven't seen a lot of his movies. I've always felt like his movies weren't very good and I've always felt like he was maybe a bit of a hack. Um, I always felt like, um, you know, I know a lot of people really love him, but I think as each as I see more Jess Franco movies, I'm really starting to appreciate why there's this love for this guy. Now, I started off with my Jess Franco movies with the movies you mentioned. Yeah, that's a I bad think Tender Flesh was that's the first one I saw. I think um, uh, that Frankenstein one with Michelle Bauer was the second one I saw. Um, and then I, I haven't really seen any of his classic ones. So I'm starting to work through those. I haven't seen Female Vampire. I haven't seen um, Lips of Blood. Or awful, that's genre Lanson. Awful Dr. Orloff. Yeah, that's I haven't, the big seen, one I haven't seen Vampiros Lesbos. So I'm starting to work my th- way through these. Even, even Bloody Moon, the Severin one. Yeah, I haven't seen that either. I did see that cannibal one he did, Devil Hunter. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. Anyway, this one, you know, when I was first starting to watch it, I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, you know, he, he doesn't know what he's doing. There's no plot. There's, you know, it's... You know, the fucking camera zooming in and out everywhere. But, you know, as I was watching it and I actually watched it, actually I watched this three times because I watched it a second time with the Tim Lucas commentary from Video Watchdog, who's kind of a Franco expert and a Bob expert. And he really put this movie into perspective. But I really did. I was getting more out of it than a lot of Jess Franco movies. Keep in mind, a lot of people think this movie sucks. But watching this now, it was a really surreal um, look at um, what I thought was um, madness, like someone who's like going crazy. I thought it was a look at um, uh, purgatory, like souls stuck between worlds. Um, And it had all this kind of like trippy, surrealist stuff going on. Um, in this version that I watched because this this wasn't a horror movie this was a woman who was going to uh, uh, her her uh, father had committed suicide she was going to a remote estate to to see that her 
the rest of her family. She gets there. Everyone's all kind of fucking weird and doing weird shit. Like the movie, um, she she walks in and Howard Vernon, who is in a lot of uh, Franco's movies, is sitting there playing the piano. Next thing she knows, she's uh, seeing one of her um, one of her relatives is dying, and the the woman actually does die. And then they prop her up in like the the living room, and they're all kind of having a party around this corpse. And so it's just kind of weird, like all this weird stuff's going on. Um, eventually, she of course has to, because it's a Jess Franco movie. She has to go. She goes for a walk, and then decides to go skinny dipping in a lake. And then there's like these weird dudes, like in the bushes, like really weird dudes, like like peeping on her and like this one old guy with these like wide eyes who looks like he belongs in a Marx Brothers movie. Um, it, you know, she gets back to the house. There's like bats on the bed. And then like, you know, then she walks into another room and there's a woman like, you know, biting another woman's breast and there's blood everywhere. And like, not a lot of it makes sense, but what it, what it is, is it's kind of like this, this woman kind of going crazy and being around this, this family of, of people that aren't really even there, but they're like souls that are like trapped between our world and the next. And if you're looking at it from that perspective, and I, I did get some help from Tim Lucas, you know, figuring all this out. I did feel like there's a lot more going on in Jess Franco's work than I've, I've seen in the past. And it's really actually made me think this guy's way more talented and got a lot more to offer than I think a lot of people give him credit for. And it also has made me want to watch more of his movies and learn more about his style and, and his ideas, because I think this one was quite, really quite fascinating and I, I would absolutely recommend it. He was also dealing with the death of Soledad Miranda, who was in a lot of his early work that became, was on the verge of becoming a star. And that's where Franco became quite famous as well was through his work with her. She dried, died tragically in a car accident. I think this movie was a lot of him trying to deal with that. Um, um, so there's a lot of stuff going on here. Franco also plays one of the lead roles and he plays like kind of a kind of an imbecile, but uh, and he's just kind of like like an Igor type character lurking around all the time. But uh, kind of kind of neat to see him on screen. Um, I mean, if you're into the nudity and stuff like there's, of course, a lot of beautiful women on display here. Um, there's a lot of like it's it's set in this really cool like palace location a lot of cool camera shots um and just a lot of really interesting symbolism and uh, i i really liked it quite a bit now this movie was reshot uh, like a few years later they shot all the zombie footage directed by jean roland to try and cash in on the zombie craze that was coming from the romero films and uh fulci zombie and all that and holy crap it totally like makes this uh it, this is where the shitty movie idea comes from because this zombie footage a makes no sense and b is like terrible it's like the worst zombies well almost the worst zombies you've ever seen other than zombie lake um i'm but, glad you mentioned zombie lake but they're really really bad and it it really is a sequence that makes no sense whatsoever and it, they also show up later and it kind of ruins the the original ending of this so i'd i'd uh I'd avoid uh, I'd advise you to try and stay away from that version even that's the, that's the more known version it's also the title that the the blu-ray is under but um, when you put in the blu-ray you have to pick that version as a special feature the one that initially comes up is Christina Prince of Princess of eroticism which is the one I'd recommend um, so yeah I mean I don't know how you feel about Jess Franco but this this is kind of I feel like a bit of a turning point for me with him 
Um, I'm very anti-late career Jess Franco. Like, you know, Tender Flesh, yeah. Killer Barbies, all that stuff. I'm not into I, that. Killer Barbies is fine. Yeah, I, I'm not really into that stuff. Yeah. Like, the last real movie, like, late 80s, early, like, 90s, 80s, I liked Faceless. Faceless really Like, good. I thought yeah. Faceless was entertaining, but... Um, I also like Bloody Moon because that's that's Franco trying to do like an American slasher movie and not doing the greatest of job of it, but it's still really watchable. But you're right. He does get a little bit of a little bit too much shit, I think, because like his earlier stuff, like awful, awful Dr. Orloff and and things like that are actually pretty competent, decently done movies. Like I, I feel like a lot of people are coming from it from your angle where his uh, his later stuff like Tender Flesh and that was a lot more accessible to us. Yes, at around that time, definitely. So yeah. like you know because you had companies like EI or whatever we were putting it out, and at the yeah. time we were into the indie stuff, and you know the, it was way easier for us to get our hands on his bad output than it was his good stuff. And because of companies like Redemption, who are who are distributed by Kino, they are getting some of this older stuff. Like I have the awful Dr. Orloff mm. Blu-ray at home. And, you know, I, I like that movie and I think he does have some style as a director that I think a lot of people overlook because of those older movies. And because like he was kind of an eccentric guy in general, like if you watch bloody moon, there's an interview with him on that disc where he's just chain smoking through the whole thing. And yeah, he's same like, with on this he one. just, he just seems like kind of an eccentric crazy uncle kind of right yeah but i mean i i just think that uh i think he does get a bad rap when a guy like um joe joe DiMato gets a better reputation than he does and i think joe mm. Di- <laughs> i, I, I think joe DiMato, i think honestly joe DiMato is a worse director than just oh Franco. yeah 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 but i i feel like people like joe DiMato more hmm. i just feel like he's Maybe. got a <laughs> he's got a bigger fan base than franco i think it just yeah. seems weird to me. Um, I just, I mean, I know Vince D'Amato. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of D'Amato's, loves Jess Franco, you yeah. know, and I've never really gotten it. You know, and I think, you know, if I had, if I had, when I was really into, like, when I was a teenager and really into zombie movies and horror movies and renting them all the time, if I had rented a Virgin Among the Living Dead, I would have been like, this is shit. Well, that's because why. I would have been wanting a zombie movie and the zombies in this are shit. Like, it's terrible. But now looking at it as like kind of a weird art film, like it's this is pretty fucking cool. Well, it's also interesting that you're you're bringing that up about how if you would have saw that version with the Jean Roland stuff put yeah. in, you would have thought it was shit because only Jean Roland movie I've seen is Zombie Lake and it's fucking garbage. And that's why I've never had the desire to watch Fascination or Grapes of Death mm, or any of those. Yeah, even though, really good. Even yeah. though people say those yeah. things are good movies. So I think it's kind of like Jess Franco. You see a couple of movies, you don't like him, and you automatically assume he's shit. I see Zombie Lake, I automatically assume Jean Roland's shit. Well, it's, it's interesting. You're right, because yeah. like the, the mainstream output of these two guys in video stores when we were growing up was the, was the shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, not the shit as in good shit. It was like the shitty shit. Yeah. Uh, whoa, that was a lot of shit. Um but it was yeah. That's really weird that they would put out like why not put out this version of this movie in the foreign section instead of the crappy zombie version of the movie in the horror section. But that's also why in our age right now of it being a niche market yeah. for collectors, 
we're 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 having kind of a resurgence of you know auteurs being rediscovered you know we're getting redemption putting out all these titles by Jean Roland and Jess Franco we're getting Paul Nashy box sets from yeah, Shout Factory yeah. you know we're getting all this stuff now and this is really going to help fuel this appreciation and it's also going to help us you know we know a lot about movies but this is going to help us educate ourselves about this stuff too because you know it's different where you read stuff rather than experiencing it for yourself. And if you go into something with a bad impression, like me with Jean Roland and zombie yeah. Lake and you maybe with like tender flesh, and then you'll see something and you're like, okay, maybe I was wrong. And then you want to dive more in. And, and that's why being in this environment that we're in now with it being a niche market, I think is actually a very positive thing in that regards. I agree, and I also am so thankful for like the Tim Lucas commentary. And yeah, this guy, Tim Lucas, is a good guy. He's he really good commentary. He knows a lot of his stuff, and he makes you. He made me appreciate this movie more. Now, I watched, I, as I always do, I watched the movie first without the commentary, and then I watched it with. And although I enjoyed it, I mean, he really made me enjoy the movie a lot more. And the other thing you got to remember about Franco, especially at this time period, this guy was cranking out like ten, twelve movies a year. Like, yeah. that's crazy. Well, he was like the uh, Mike. He's like yeah, this, he's exactly. Like this, Takashi yeah. Mike, yeah. yeah. And this is like his classic era. Like, I think he did something like 40 movies in four years or something. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But and they and this is the classic stuff. So it's actually this this movie's made me a lot more excited to watch more Franco, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, you've still got a bunch though. Oh, right? I've got tons. Yeah. Um, Do but, you have um, Orloff? I don't. I might have Orloff. You should check out Orloff. I, that's yeah. my favorite of his stuff I've seen. Yeah, I mean, I've got all the like all the ones like with all the Lena Romay ones and stuff, and uh, of this time period. And um, I actually really like his uh, Jack the Ripper that he did with Kinski too. Oh yeah, I got all those ones. too. I kind of liked that one. Yeah, yeah. So um, this one, you know, if you look up reviews, it is kind of shit on. And like again, I I think this is a really underrated director, and I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing more. And I. I um I'm really glad I I gave this one a shot. So this is uh Christina Princess of Eroticism by cool. Jess Franco. All right. So um I was going to I'm going to go serious for my next couple of entries because you know I I can't watch just B movies and crappy biblical horror movies all the time. Sometimes I have to pepper my diet with like Oscar bait and documentaries and stuff. So uh I'm going to start with the Oscar bait first and uh I went and I saw um, Call Me By Your Name. Okay. Directed by Luca Guganino. I'm going to fuck that name up. Um, So this is up for Best Picture Oscar right now. Um, It's a coming-of-age story. It's set in the summer of 1983 in the countryside of Italy. Um, It stars Timothy Chalmay as an American 17-year-old who goes out to... You know, he's called Elio. He goes out to Italy for the summer with his family, who's his dad's a big professor. They go spend the summer out in Italy so that the dad can kind of relax and do a little bit of research and stuff. And uh, into the picture comes Army Hammer as an American student called Oliver, who they've brought on as a grad student for the summer. And basically the story follows their relationship in the sense that, like, you know, Elio is just, 
coming to that sexual awareness age where, but he's really confused about, you know, if what he likes. So, you know, he's got this Italian girlfriend, but then this Oliver guy shows up and he's like, I kind of got a crush on this Oliver guy, but I also feel like I should be with this girl and I'm really confused and I'm not sure if this Oliver guy likes me and this girl really likes me, but I don't really feel like I like her that much. And it's kind of that, like, you know, when you're young and you're a teenager and you're confused a lot about just relationships in general. (laughs) Just in general, don't give me the eyebrow raise, but you know how you're not sure about those things. So this is kind of a coming of age where it's like Oliver and Elio kind of cling to each other that summer and learn to, you know, grow as people together, even though there's the age difference. And even though it's technically in that era, something that's frowned upon Mm -hmm. basically. Right. And that's really what the the gist of the story here is that it, it's, you know, it's a movie that has beautiful locations because it's the Italian countryside and, you know, the Italian architecture fucking looks g- gorgeous. Like Italy's my dream country to go visit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's got really, really good acting, especially from the two leads. Uh, I thought Chalmay and Army Hammer was really good. And that's funny because Army Hammer, all I'm familiar with him is like, you know, free Bram Wheatley's Free Fire and playing the Lone Ranger in that supposedly terrible movie so i've not seen him in this type of movie and i thought he was really good in it too um the dad played by michael stuhlberg is really great in this he has a a scene in this movie where he's giving elio a really kind of heart-to-heart speech which i thought was one of the best moments of the entire film um it's just like i said it's really at its core it's a coming of age romance story drama that just happens to be between two males Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like when Brokeback Mountain came out. Mm. Brokeback Mountain was, at its heart, a love story, kind of tragic, but really a love story that just happened to be about two men. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I don't understand why people in this day and age, in the 23rd century, there's a lot of people who will not see this movie because of that. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand that. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we've grown so much as a culture that this shouldn't be an issue for us. And unfortunately, it still is. But um, this is a quiet drama. So if you're not into quiet kind of dramas, you're not going to like this. Right. Let's be honest. I had to travel to see this movie because it wasn't playing anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like it literally was playing in one theater in all of Vancouver. Right. So I had to travel to see it. And, and you know, and I really liked it. It's Is it going to be... Is it my favorite film of the year? No. But... For what it is, it's great locations, good acting. It's got really solid directing that really captures the time frame of the 80s and just the the confusion of being a teenager and the confusion of a new romance. That's really what it is. And I got to tell you, dude, this has possibly the greatest closing shot I've seen in a film in a long, long time. Oh. I'm not going to spoil anything, but I'm just going to tell you that when that close after that closing shot, like once the screen actually stopped, I went, wow. And I don't do that that often. Right. So that's all I really want to say about it. Cause I want people to experience it for themselves. But if you, if you want this kind of film, this is definitely worth your time. Cool. So see, so yeah, I had to go serious at least once. All right, well let's uh, let's go from that to uh, Reanimator. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> let's go from a love of a man to a love of intestines. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I revisited Reanimator, nineteen eighty five. I revisited that in the last year too. Yeah, the yeah. classic. Uh, 
the classic uh, horror comedy from Stuart Gordon. Not very, not that comedy, I guess, but it's... It's got its moments, dude. It's got its moments. I think Jeffrey Combs' performance in this movie is fucking comedy. Yes, it is. Yeah. The reason I revisited this is I uh, I wanted to watch the Arrow release of it because they just recently put out a uh, double disc special edition with the unrated cut that most of us are familiar with, as well as what's called the integral cut, which was uh, contained most of the unrated footage, as well as um, a bunch of like extra scenes um that were for like tv versions what's, and what's uh, the running time on that cut Do you uh, know? it was about 20 minutes longer so it was like what like one of 145 yes yeah. wow yeah. okay i've never i only am familiar with the r-rated cut which is about 90 minutes the unrated the, cut the, yeah i'm familiar with the r-rated and the unrated okay because i saw the r-rated on video that's the first version i saw this movie. oh wow okay. yeah i saw the r-rated on vhs on Vestron yeah. video back in the day and i didn't see the uncut version until the image dvd yeah yeah so i think the i think the unrated cut was actually shorter than the r-rated cut yeah, I believe the unrated yeah. cut's the shortest. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to get into the cut. Sorry, I was just wondering in a, on, the, in a minute. on the... I think we've talked about Reanimator in the past. We have. Too, on, like, Mad Scientists or something. Yeah, we have. So, yeah, it's basically... It's just about... Uh, the um, There's a university. We've got a guy there named Dan Kane, played by Bruce Abbott, who's an aspiring medical student. He's going out with the dean's daughter, Meg, played by Barbara Crampton. Um, in comes a new student, um, played by Jeffrey Combs, called Herbert West. This is based on the H.P. Lovecraft story, uh, Herbert West Reanimator. Herbert West is uh, conducting experiments because he believes he can uh, bring dead bodies back to life. Um, he There's a, another doctor in on the scene called uh, Dr. Hill, um, played by... Um, David Gale. David Gale. Yeah. Um, and David Gale and Herbert West, you know, are, are at loggerheads as to what they feel like the the possibilities are for the afterlife. Um, and then basically Herbert West starts uh, um, experimenting first on, on animals and then on an actual cadaver and craziness ensues. Um, if you haven't seen Reanimator, um, you need to Pause. stop and go see it because it is absolutely a classic. Pause I think watch. Chris and I will absolutely agree yep. on that. Super enjoyable, super holds up, and a lot of fun. And Stuart Gordon's best moment. And, and super gory. Super gory, nudity, everything. It's it's everything you could want in an 80s movie. And uh, Jeffrey Combs as Herbert West is just amazing. He's... Uh, he is. Uh, we've already, yeah. We talked about Jeffrey Combs on a whole yeah. episode, but he yeah. is just so smarmy and funny and quick and uh, and perfect. It's perfect casting for this actor. I also feel like David Gale doesn't get quite enough. Uh, You're right. Yeah. Love in this movie because he's really you. He's a fucking asshole. Like, he is. Like he's, you just yeah. don't like him, and and the fact that he's like pervy for the dean's daughter, played by Barbara Crampton, is just fucking creepy as shit yeah, it really is like because he's got like 30 years on her at least oh yeah yeah and it's just creepy as hell yeah i mean he's so known for this role i remember i saw him in uh, savage weekend and i was so weird seeing him in a different role and that all i could think of you're a perv you're a creep right yeah the only <laughs> other movie i actually like remember him from is uh is a 1988 canadian 
horrible monster movie called The Brain about a giant killer oh, yeah. brain yeah. where he plays a scientist in that as well. Huh. And it's it's not a very good movie, but you could tell he was cast in that because of Reanimator. Right. Because it's a very similar character. Yeah. Now, the difference between the two cuts. So, it's really... It's okay, so Stuart Gordon's favorite cut is the unrated cut. Yeah. So, I'm always pretty much going to go That's with... That's my favorite cut. ...what the director But I've not saying. seen the new cut. Yeah. Now, the new cut... I, I believe, like, I felt like I had seen a lot of the scenes before, and I think where I have seen them is so maybe on, like, the uh, the previous, you know, the Anchor Bay Millennium Edition. I think they had all the deleted scenes on there, but this cut just incorporates them into well, the narrative. Well, you could have been like me and saw the R-rated cut on, on VHS. Right. But the new scenes, like, there's, um, the main thing is we've got um, uh, Dr. Dr. Hill is... Um, able to hypnotize people so it does fill in a couple of plot holes but it also and it also explains like for example why the dean is all of a sudden doesn't really like dan anymore because it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense why he kind of turns on dan really quickly this explains that a lot more um there's also a lot more scenes of dan and um um uh megan um just talking about the relationship and stuff um, but I felt like everything that was cut, um, like everything that it, it was cut, all the stuff was cut out. So like, it didn't matter whether this stuff was in there or not. Like if you had left in part of this, it wouldn't have made sense, but I believe in the unrated cut when they cut it all, they cut everything about that they were talking about out. So it didn't really matter. Um, but it was kind of interesting just getting a little more with those two. Um, but in the integral cut, all the gore is still there as well. I did find one thing that was kind of weird about it because I did compare a few scenes is that like some of the shots were like the angles were different, which I thought was kind of kind of interesting. Um, for example, of course, perv me. Um, there's a scene where Dan and uh, and um, Meg are, are talking in bed um, after they have sex. And that scene, parts of that scene are shot from different angles, which I thought was really quite quite weird. Um, they're also one of the, one of the opening scenes, so it's um, it's interesting because it is quite different. Yet you don't really feel the difference that much. Like, and I was quite happy. I'm, and I still am a fan of the unrated cut. I, I don't think I'd watch the integral cut. If I'm going to watch Reanimator, I'm going to watch the unrated yeah. cut. Um, it was kind of neat seeing this extra stuff, but. I'm okay with the one I know and love. So, um, but yeah, I think Arrow did a really good job on this. I haven't been had a chance to go through all the extras. Um, they do do a, a, there's a new commentary on this, but it's with like Graham Skipper and some other dude. And they were involved with the um, reanimator, the musical. Right. So, and, and Stuart Gordon. And I don't really know why I'd want to watch a commentary with those guys. Um, and there's also a, like a feature ad on reanimator the musical. Like, I think it's cool. They made it a musical, but I don't know if I really need to watch features on it and a commentary track. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and there, there's some other cool new featurettes as well. I think there's a new interview with Crampton and stuff like that, but uh, I think arrows done a good job. I mean, this is obviously the definitive version to buy of this. Now that you've got two completely separate cuts of the movie. So. Yeah. I have the, um, I think it's the image blu-ray i have no or anchor bay blu-ray i don't know what company it is right but that's i think that one's just the uncut version on there but yeah, it's got all, the, all you need but it's got all the stuff carried over from like the millennial edition 
DVDs. Yeah. So, I mean, I've got a pretty good version of it right now. Yeah, but... and I think that one had, there was a documentary about 75 minutes long. Can't remember what it's called, but it's on here. But I believe that was on that Millennium Edition as oh, well. Okay. So, um, but well, yeah, anyway, I mean, if you haven't don't own Reanimator yet, this is definitely the yeah, one. Yeah, Arrow's get. a good company to support. So, yeah, yeah if you don't own Reanimator, definitely buy the Arrow one because Arrow has not disappointed me yet. Yeah. So... So there you go. That's the second movie where I've watched multiple versions of the movie for this. Wow. Yeah. Dedication. That's, that's what I do for you people. Uh, all right. So uh, I'm going to talk about a, uh, a documentary now. Is this your last one? No, I have one more after this one. Okay, good. So um, there, when we went to see the Suspiria 4K, um, in the early trailers, there was a trailer for that um, DOA documentary, the punk one. Yeah. And there was also... A a trailer for this documentary that I watched called The Force in oh, yeah. 2017. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this just popped up on Netflix, actually, in the last week. Oh, uh, cool. Kino released, Kino Lorber released this theatrically in a few cities, but uh, now it's made, it's produced by PBS, and now it's made its way to Netflix. So what this is, is um, filmmaker Peter Nix decided to... You know, he got access from 2014 to 2016 to the Oakland, California Police Department. Now, the Oakland, California Police Department is pretty much has the reputation as being the worst police department in all of America, I'd say. Like, there's so much stuff that goes on with them, like, you know, a lot of racial stuff, a lot of, like, rioting, a lot of, like, you know, scandals and all that stuff. And, and this, is, this is when he got access. This was when the new police chief... Sean Went was brought in to try and like fix the problems within the Oakland Police Department, you know, try and change the public's persona of the of the department, kind of get them away from the whole, you know, maybe you shouldn't be, uh, you know, assaulting your perps as much as you're doing and things like that and teaching people in the police academy the proper way of being police. And, you know, he had access to this for two years. So what this is, is it's, it follows Sean Wentz kind of going through trying to fix the problems. It goes through the social, un, you know, like the social disorder that's going on in Oakland with, you know, it's a lot of it has to do with race relations and like the, the African-American community believing that the police are purposely shooting black right. males, you know, because this is a, this is big news stories. And it also touches on a, uh, a sex scandal that rocked the Oakland Police Department in the in 2015, I believe it was, where a uh, prostitute accused like 20 officers of sexually assaulting her. So it goes through all this stuff, but it also kind of will follow people. It follows a lot of the stuff at the police academy where they're training them how to, you know, properly deal with this stuff. It follows the race relation stuff. It follows the police chief trying to deal with that and trying to deal with the new mayor who's kind of being wishy-washy. And it follows beat cops. So, you know, it's got a lot of footage of their, like, uniform cams and stuff as they're chasing down perps and stuff. And it talks about what it's like to be a cop on the beat in Oakland, which is not a very safe place to be a cop and everything. And, you know, it's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Because you don't really see the inner workings of these kind of things. Like, you know, for you, the police department is just there. They're just something that's there. And you don't really think about the kind of jobs they have to do. And you don't really realize that a lot of times these are jobs. I wouldn't fucking want this job. 
Like, yeah. this is not a job I would want. So, you know, I really respect the kind of job they're doing. And, and, and this is fascinating because you don't get to see that kind of stuff that often. And for him to get this kind of access, it's pretty astounding. Yeah. Like, and, and the way he's, the way he's also structured this is really cool because you get to see all sides of the, of everything. You know, you get to see the police academy stuff, like I said, and then you get to see how they're dealing with all the race relations, but he doesn't take sides in this. Like he doesn't say, Oh, the cops, you know, they shouldn't be treated this way because they're cops. And he's not saying, and then he's not saying that the, the black people should be treated this way because of this. He's just saying, this is how it is in Oakland. It's fucked up. Yeah. It needs to be fixed. And so, you know, I found that really, really cool. I, I, you know, there's a lot of frustration and mistrust that runs through this whole movie that I thought was really fascinating too. And I, I just think if you're at all interested in how, like, I know you like movies that are about beat cops, but I feel like, you know, this is, will show you like, give you more of a perspective on how these movies actually portrayed it accurately or not. Hmm. Because, you know, a lot of these beat cop movies, I'm sure they take some kind of I'm you know, sure. creative license, right? Yeah. Whereas this is just like, some of it's scary, and yeah. I wouldn't want to have to deal with that. You know, there's scenes of them going in the middle of basically a race riot and being told to their face, like, fuck off, get out of our face, you're racist, why don't yeah. you shoot more of us and all this? And you're just like, that's not got to be good on your, on your psyche Yeah, to have to deal with that. So, you know, there, it doesn't hold together the entire time because I felt like by the end there was just so much they tried to cram in because this is only like 93 minutes long. So they're trying to cram in a lot of stuff. So it kind of lost a little bit of its effectiveness near the end. But what's there is really fascinating. I really enjoyed watching it. I was It made me really think about a lot of things. And, you know, that's what documentaries are supposed to do. They're supposed to let you think about things and mull things over. And, you know, these days for modern documentaries, I find a lot of them aren't doing that for me. Yeah. Like they're more gloss, like anything that like that um, Super Size Me guy makes. Right. You know, Morgan Spurlock. Stuff he makes. I don't think when I'm watching his movies. Whereas this one, I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, wow, that's fucked up. Or what can they do to fix this? And, you know, you actually think about things like what kind of solutions they have. And what you think you kind of put it on yourself like what would i do in that situation and that's how a documentary is should be and that's how you know it's working yeah you know so i would recommend watching this because it's on netflix especially for a guy like you who likes that kind of world yeah yeah and you had watched that other one about the um the seven five yeah the corrupt yeah. police force guys there yeah that's so good yeah you should watch this too it's kind of a flip side to that because this is yeah. actually showing cops who are trying to do good and have all these odds stacked up against them automatically the interesting thing about this is I, I when I watched the trailer, yeah. I did think it looked like a, a cool movie. But my, the thing that was going through my head when I was watching the trailer is kind of what you just said, is this seems like a subject that's way too big for a movie. Yeah, it like does. This should have been one of those, like, it should have been like The Keepers, like, you know, like a an eight-part documentary series or something on Netflix instead of a feature film that's 90 minutes. Because even what you've described, it sounds like it was more of a story that could have been told over it could a have. longer it could have definitely period. Been. Yeah. Yeah. So that it, would be my only concern, but yeah, I'm totally, I didn't know this was on Netflix. So I'll yeah, check it out. They just added it. Yeah. Cause like, you know, right from the get go, this feels like a losing battle for this police yeah. force. Right. And, and you know, I think we have it pretty good where we are, where we don't have to deal with a lot of this stuff. 
No. And, and you know, it, I just found it to be fascinating more than anything. The only other thing I want to mention is um, the score by Justin Melland. And I don't, I don't mention scores that often, but pretty effective score. It was one of those scores where it's very low kind of, you know, those kind of scores where they're not like, they're just like, a dread sounding score through the whole thing. Yeah. Kind of like that. That's the kind of score it is. And I thought it really worked for the subject matter. Cool. So yeah, that's the force. It's on Netflix. I think if you're, if you're at all interested in this kind of stuff, you should check it out. Nice. All right. Well, um, my next one is a 1971 movie. Okay. Directed by Don Siegel. Okay. About a Union soldier who is injured. Beguiled. <laughs> I just watched the Sophia Coppola. I know you did. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about it. No. That's really interesting. Yeah. So, um, oh, well, I'm going to ask you why after <laughs> I've talked about it. Um, I've been wanting to see this one for a while. I picked it up a while ago, and um, it's. I think it's kind of... It is kind of a fluke that I did happen to watch it in the same week where you watched it. But I, I, <laughs> I was like, oh, remake. weird. <laughs> um, so Don Siegel, of course, uh, very, very famous director of the of the 70s, worked with Clint Eastwood a lot. Uh, some of his more famous movies are Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original, The Shootist, which was John Wayne's last movie, and, of course, Dirty Harry. Um, so in this one, uh, Clint Eastwood stars as a Union soldier in the Civil War who's injured and is found by uh, a young girl, a uh, very young girl from a girl's um, uh, kind of not really a school, but like um, kind of like a um, it's kind of like a wayward home. Yeah, like a house where, yeah, like it's, there's like a bunch of girls live in this house run by this woman. Kind of like a finishing school almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um this young girl uh, finds him and uh, sort of helps helps Eastwood back to this home so he can, you know, be safe because he's out and it's in the south. So he's a Union soldier. So he's on enemy territory. So she brings him back and um, they decide to take him in and let him get healed before um, they let him release him to the um, to the Confederates. And the reason they keep him in is because they feel like um, if he's released right away, he'll certainly die. So they want to kind of at least give him a chance. And he seems like an okay guy at the beginning. Um, so very quickly after he, you know, starts to settle in and feel a little better in his bed, he's kind of a dick. Like, and I didn't, you know, Eastwood characters, usually I, I like them. Like usually Eastwood plays a pretty, you know, I mean, Dirty Harry's kind of a dick too, but, um, but usually like this guy is really kind of morally there's something going on there. And, and I wasn't quite sure how I felt about him, but, um, you know, as, as the movie gets started, he's, um, you know, he's starting to like flirt with the different girls, you know, and obviously it's a girl school. So these, you know, and they're all, you know, young, like they're all, except for the, 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 um, woman who runs the school was probably in her fifties. The rest of them are all, um, quite young, um, teenagers, early twenties. Um, if, if even that, and, um, obviously, you know, sexual feelings are starting to come up. So Eastwood picks up on that pretty quick and starts flirting with them all. And eventually the, you know, some of the girls are developing crushes on him 
them and uh you know some of them he's like taking more than you know he's he's flirting with them and then moving you know starting to make out with a few of them and and it starts to create little cracks in the school and like some of the you know the girls start turning on each other and it was just quite quite interesting just watching this guy come in and kind of start manipulating everyone and um this is where i kind of started feeling like he is kind of a dick because i'm not really sure what he was getting out of it like there was not really a reason for him to to do what he was doing it was just kind of like he was an asshole just seeing what he could get away with now i think part of it is he was he you know with especially with the woman who ran the school he was trying to like get into her good graces so she wouldn't release him to the confederates where he would be taken held prisoner you know and eventually he convinces her to let him stay and help out with odd jobs and things like that you know all the while where he's like hitting on the other girls and you know one in particular is really starting to fall for him there's kind of another one who's uh little bit more um a little bit more trampy who like is just trying to have sex with him and you know he spoiler alert he ends up he actually does have sex with her um and you know and then as as you know people start finding out these things jealousy ensues and then eventually it starts to take on a pretty dark turn as um (laughs) um something pretty intense happens to to the Eastwood character that I was like, holy fuck. Like, I couldn't believe what was going on on the screen, especially for a movie of this time period. Um, and then, um, and then that leads to him, you know, it, it, he's no longer playful. He's now just fucking mad and, and just out for like, like just, he just started, sort of hates everyone. And it's just, he turns into a real asshole, but for good reason. And, um, yeah, and then the story kind of goes from there, and I'm I'm not don't really want to blow the ending, so I'm gonna let it go there. But um, what an interesting movie, especially at this time, like because Eastwood was all was known for his westerns and known for his cop movies. Um, like he had done a few cop movies before this, like Coogan's Bluff, but mainly known for the spaghetti westerns and you know Hang 'Em High and and um, not really known for a character like this. And it's also quite a quiet movie. Like it's this isn't an action movie, which is a little out of character for Don Siegel as well. Um, and yeah, and just for what was going on at the time, like um, I mean, one of the opening shots where he first meets this little girl who's probably like eight. Like there's a he full on kisses her, and it's like he's doing it to like pretend that he's or it looks like he's almost doing it to keep her quiet because there's like the enemy enemy soldiers are riding by on horses. But at the same time, it's like, is he doing it to be keep her quiet or is he just like a total gross pervert? And just the way he's like playing with the, the different women is it's just t- totally out of character and, and a, quite an odd movie. And like I said, the uh, some of the things that happen are very, very shocking for for the time period. But I, I quite liked it. Um, there is um, a lot of really close calls in this movie, which uh, really amps up the suspense. Um, it's termed as like kind of like a Southern Gothic drama, which is right on the money. I mean, it, it fits in with movies like The Big Easy and and um, even stuff like Angel Heart in a way, like with that kind of tone of that Southern tone. And um, yeah, liked it quite a bit. Um, just on a trivia side of things, Joanne Harris plays uh, 
Carol, the kind of uh, more of more of the trampy type of uh, girl there. She was the star of Rape Squad, aka Act of Vengeance, which is uh, was pretty cool to see her in this. And Mae Mercer, who played the um, black maid, she was. Um, if you've seen the Swinging Cheerleaders with Jack Hill, uh, directed by Jack Hill, there was this like crazy black woman in that. That like um, one of the cheerleaders is like um, hooks up with a teacher, and then the wife finds out and like basically threatens her life it's that woman and it was a totally shocking for me to see her in this because swinging cheerleaders is, let's be honest it's a b movie of the 70s i i didn't realize she was in actual like serious movies like this um and um elizabeth hartman who played edwina played um uh buford presser's um wife in walking tall but um yeah liked it quite a bit um remake <laughs> I love Sofia Coppola, so it just seems weird for her to remake it, this. It's funny because um, I haven't seen the original right. in a long time. So oh, you've seen it, though. I saw it like a long time ago, so I didn't remember anything about it going in. So That's interesting. Like I, I had no interest in this movie when I was young. No, I saw it a long time like ago. Like when you were a teenager? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Why? I don't. I think it was because I was going through an Eastwood phase, and I watched everything. Wow. But um, it's funny when you're talking about it because it's the exact opposite in her movie. Because the soldier played by Colin Farrell in that movie, he doesn't really manipulate the girls. Oh. He doesn't flirt with them. He doesn't do any of that stuff particularly. It's the girls who are being the ones who are, you Weird. know, forcing the hand of the soldier. They're all like, because they haven't seen a man in forever, or because they're, some of them are coming into their sexual peaks, they're the ones who are like, hey, there's this guy who's injured in the other room who has his shirt off all the time and everything. Let's all start trying to, like, get his attention. We want him to be with us. So they all start infighting, saying, they are like, no, come see me. No, come see me. And they kind of fight over his attention. Weird. He doesn't particularly manipulate anybody into doing that stuff. They kind of manipulate him. So it's a total gender reversal from the original from what you're saying. And from a female filmmaker, that seems really odd. Yeah, it's like a gender reversal because, like, the Colin Farrell character, he never really, like, apart from, like, when he got interested in, in the Kirsten Dunst character in the movie, who's, like, the um, one of the teachers. Because Nicole Kidman plays, like, kind of the... The matron of the, the Geraldine Page of character, the school, yeah. and then Kirsten Dunst is a teacher, and then the rest are all girls. She's the Edwina. The, yeah, there's uh, no Elizabeth there's no Hartman. maid character in this movie. No maid. Yeah. Okay. So, so the other one's kind of like is she kind of like the next in line to Kidman? Yeah, I guess so. She's Dunst? like the one who's teaching them okay, all their okay, so lessons she's and everything. The Elizabeth Hartman, the Edwina character. Okay. Yeah. So she, so she's like you know she kind of is the one who the who the soldier takes an interest in. But the soldier never really manipulates her. Like, hmm. they kind of have this thing going on, but at the same time, all the girls are trying to manipulate him into, like, you know, with the one trampy girl, like you were saying, is trying to manipulate him to having sex with her. Who's that? Um, I don't remember who the actress is, to be honest with you. Um, and then, you know, the other ones all have their own kind of agendas because none of them have seen a man or some of them are, have budding sexuality, and it plays on that a lot more, it seems, in the remake. And, you know, it does get fairly dark in the end, just like the original sounds like it does, which I'm not going to really talk about. But the problem I had with the remake was that it was just kind of slow. And for most of the time, it didn't do anything. 
Yeah, but you generally like movies like that. I do sometimes, but this time it just didn't really work for me that well. I don't know what it was about it. Like, I didn't mind it, but I'm not going to be like, oh, I love the Beguiled, the Sofia Coppola's Beguiled. It's such a statement. It's such a feminist statement or blah, blah, blah. I'm yeah. not, not going to do that. It's a good-looking movie shot with natural light. So a lot of it's kind of dark because it's all shot with candles and everything. And the performances were good, but it's not a movie that I'm really going to remember. I'm already kind of forgetting about it, and I've only watched it like two weeks ago. Yeah. So, I, you know, I feel like I've heard that if you're going to watch the story, you should be watching the Eastwood one. Well, it's it's weird because, like, I just, you know, watching this, I was just like, there is no need to update this. Like, mm. it's fine. First of all, it's a period piece. Yeah. So it's not like it was set in the 70s and you need to make it contemporary. And I'm assuming Coppola's version is also set it's during Civil the War, Civil yeah. War. Yep. So it's the exact same basic premise that the, the girl finds the soldier wounded in the woods and takes him back. Yeah. It's exactly the same. Interesting. Does it ever spell out what kind of guy he is? Or you're saying he's kind of more likable, eh? In the Coppola one. Yeah. Huh. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, because I, I did never felt like there was any need to, to update this at no. all. And, uh, you know, because I like Sofia Coppola, I probably will check it out. Not right away, because it sounds like, it sounds a bit different, but it, it sounds like I could wait a bit, you know, to check it out. Um, but yeah, I, I just think she, she could have, she's so good at making her own movies. I, I, she, yeah, I thought it was a weird choice for her to do this. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah. Because she's, she does have more of a unique voice, and and to have her do a remake seems kind of weird when she's done such decent, like good original movies like Lost in Translation and all those. Like she doesn't need to be doing a remake, especially this of one. an Eastwood movie. Yeah, like there's no need. Yeah, weird. Okay, right. um, just one other, a couple more quick things on this. Um, just for genre fans. Um, Pamela Ferndon, who played another one of the, the girls, was in Toolbox Murders. And another one of them, Melody Thomas, was in um, uh, Piranha, the Fury, and the Car. So you, there's a lot of recognizable faces in this. But anyway, that's The Beguiled from 1971 and a little bit of The Beguiled from 2017. A little bit. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> this is my final entry of the night. And this is my Joshua Wright entry of the night. Oh, because I watched Wonder Woman, and I didn't oh, like it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was like excited for a second. See, you do this. I told you not to watch this. <laughs> I had watched Spider Man, and uh, I was like, "You just killed all your all the superhero goodwill I built up." No, I had such goodwill coming off of Spider Man. I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna watch Wonder Woman. It's supposed to be good." Then I'm watching. I'm like, "I'm bored." I'm bored. I'm so fucking bored. I'll guide you through which superhero movies to watch. Okay, well, <laughs> this is not one this of This is my question for, <laughs> for Wonder Woman. Number one, why did Patty Jenkins direct this other than them saying we need a female director? The last movie she made was Monster, which is a fucking amazing yeah. movie. Why is she doing a superhero movie? It's because they wanted a female director. No other reason. Yeah. How is Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman? She's okay, but I didn't think she deserves all this praise she's getting just because you're a female hero in a in a decade in an era where feminism's a big deal right now. It's not 
she's not anything that's going to change my viewpoint on how Wonder Woman is. Linda Carter's better Wonder Woman. Yeah. Which is what you said also. Yeah. How is the story? Boring. Why? Because it's trying to be, it's DC trying to capture the World War II Captain America feel that Marvel has yeah. and not really succeeding. Fuck, for most of this movie, I thought that Chris Pine character, is it Chris Pine who's yeah. in this? I thought he was fucking Captain America. That's how similar they are. And then I had to remind myself I'm not watching a Marvel movie. And Chris Evans is Captain America. Yeah. Yeah. But when I'm watching I'm like But I get it. I'm He's like Captain oh. Kirk. I'm like, oh look, it's like Captain it's Captain America World War Two Nazis. I'm like, wait, well, wait, 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 wrong universe. Yeah. So I was like I was like, Okay, no thanks. Yeah. Um CG bad. Oh god I bad know. fucking CG. <laughs> Inexcusable. In a big budgeted Hollywood movie of 2017, yeah. to have CG that looks bad. The scenes where Wonder Woman is jumping through the air or doing anything that's super, super physical or fast movement looks terrible. Yeah. It looks really bad. Yeah. I'm just watching going, this is unacceptable. Yeah. Um, let's see, what else? Fight scenes. Let's, yeah, yeah let, hang on, I'm getting there. Uh, <laughs> let's see what else. Okay. Um, um, uh, as an origin story, completely uninteresting. I don't care about the scenes on your Amazon island. I don't. You didn't build up anything oh, about it. Oh, those were the best part, I thought. I just didn't feel anything for these whip, for these people. I was just like, okay, you're on an Amazon island. Oh, a man came and fucking ruined it. Oh, here comes Hitler. You know, I just <laughs> didn't really, I didn't really care that much. And it's unfortunate because I was like, oh, this is a nice s- setup and everything. But I was just like... I was didn't care. Okay, that's all I liked about this movie. Um, another thing, let's see this. <laughs> okay, before I move on from the origin story, why did they have to have so much origin story? Because you look at a movie like Spider-Man: Homecoming, where they had barely any origin story, and it's way more effective. Yeah, just wondering why they needed so much origin. Okay, another thing. While I'm moving on, that party scene. Right. I'm going to go to a party where there's a high up, high ranked Nazi leader. And I'm going to walk into that party with a slinky dress on, but I'm going to have my sword shoved down the back of my dress. <laughs> and the handle of it is going to be totally on fucking display while I'm walking through this party in slow motion right up to this Nazi guy, and no one fucking notices I have a sword jammed down my dress. <laughs> Nobody notices. I'm calling bullshit. <laughs> On that. <laughs> that scene, I was just like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Right. Yeah. No thanks. I understand it's a superhero movie. You have to suspend your disbelief. Blah, 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 blah. Um, <laughs> man, I'm really shitting on this. You are. Um, you are. Way worse than I did. Final fight? Lame as shit. All fights. All lame fights as lame as shit. Just like... It's because of the CG, though, dude. Honestly. It's because of that, like... That slow super... the action, swing oh, yeah. the camera around oh, yeah. the scene. That. It's like I've seen <sighs> the Matrix. Fuck. I've seen the yeah. Matrix in 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 uh, two thousand and one. I don't need to see this in two thousand and seventeen. It's like a DC thing. Like, they they hey, all have to do this. They're like, hey, let's slow down the action while she's kicking the bad guy in the shin. Yeah. 
that was annoying actually and then the camera like pans around the room so it's like a different angle of her and then the action speeds up from the second angle yeah and then the cg was just yeah i think it's the cg that ruined it for me yeah and the fact that the story was just not interesting at all the villain was terrible too and and the last thing i just gotta say and this is this is my i don't care what people think thing is Seriously, fucking people, you people who are online saying that this movie got snubbed for Oscars, are you fucking serious right now? <laughs> are people saying that? People are saying Wonder Woman should have been nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> are you fucking serious? Really? Are, no, you're fucking... I'm not kidding. <laughs> people are saying Gal Gadot should have been nominated for Best Actress. No. Are you fucking no serious? No way. Yes. Wonder Woman, avoid. Spider-Man Homecoming, watch twice to make up for Wonder Woman being poor. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't get I don't get it. I don't get it. This was fine. Like this was fine. When I watched it in the theater, it was fine. It was fine. I, I wouldn't say it I'd was... say it wasn't even fine. I'd say it was boring. Yeah, it was boring. Yeah. Like I wasn't angry. I, I got angry. I was angry at the fight. Scenes. I think I'm more angry now that I'm talking about it than I was when I was watching it. But just when it was over, I was just like, man, I didn't like that. What's it the big deal? It just washed over me, and it was like, like I wasn't like Ghostbusters angry. Yeah. But I was like, okay. And as soon as it was over, I'm like, okay, that's done. And it was out of my mind. Yeah. Like, I, just I like, never think about it, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, watch Homecoming twice. I can't believe people are saying she should have got best, best actress. They're saying they should have got best picture. Crazy. Like that's I crazy. Say, are you fucking serious? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's Wonder Woman. All right. Josh and Future's Adventures. Well, I almost didn't do this. I, I watched this today, and as I told you, I had workers working on my balcony today, So, um, but they did manage to shut up for two hours, so uh, luckily I just snuck this in. Um, so I watched a movie from 2001. Let's see. Directed by Jeff Schechter, who uh, wrote Bloodsport 2. <laughs> oh, Chris is losing his touch. And this is called The Tracker. Yeah, no. Don okay. the Dragon, though? No, 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 Don the Dragon. Oh, okay. So this stars Casper Van Dien. Oh, shit. That's why I don't know it. <laughs> as Connor Spears. Well, that's a that's a that's a bounty hunter name. And I didn't know this going in, but this is kind of a buddy. It's a buddy action movie, Ooh. like full on. Okay, so it's Casper da- Van going. Dien teamed up with Russell Wong, who's, a, who's an Asian American actor that I do like quite a bit. Keep he was going. in Romeo Must Die yeah. and uh, a bunch of other stuff. So um, the movie opens with quite a quite a good. Um, house assault where um there's a, a asian uh, dude and his wife and his wife's played by um lexa doig from jason x oh yeah and, okay and um they're hanging out at home and um it turns out that the 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 husband is like involved with the crime family but he's trying to live the straight and narrow path but um they're they're hanging out at home and then this this truck pulls up out front and these russian mobsters jump out of the truck and go in and like kill everyone and uh pretty pretty intense scene like there's a lot of great gun good gunfight and uh action going on and uh they kidnap lexa doig so then we cut to Casper Van Dien's introduction, and 
I like Casper Van Dien. I you know I know he gets like laughed at and stuff. I thought he was great as Johnny Rico in Starship Troopers, and you know whenever he's popped up, I, I never have a problem with this guy. I mean, he's not the greatest actor, but I think he does he does fine. I mean, he's a kind of a pretty boy, you know, blonde dude. But he um, you know, he's not a, he's he's not awesome, but he's not awful either. I haven't seen his Tarzan movie. Um, but I did see his James Dean movie and it was okay. Um, but yeah, you seem to really not like him, but didn't you like Starship Troopers? I like Starship Troopers. You didn't think he was okay in it? Yeah, he was okay, I guess. He's okay. Like he's not, I just don't think he's as bad he's as not a He's say. not a guy who, if I see him top build, I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch that movie. No, that's true. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. <laughs> And he did go into, like, direct-to-video pretty fucking quick. Yeah, like, he did. He went, went into direct-to-video faster than Van Damme. It was, like, Starship Troopers. Direct and then video. that... Though Starship Troopers was big budget. Yeah. And then that Tarzan movie... And then it was Starship Troopers 2 direct-to-DVD. Yeah, the Starship movie didn't work. Because I think they were trying to make... That was his big leading role. And it didn't work. And then it was direct-to-video ever since. But he's Okay. Um, but Russell Wong, I really like, and, uh, he's been in lots of stuff anyway. Um, so Casper Van Dien is like, I'd like to refer to him as CVD from now on because it's easier. Okay. CVD (laughs) is this, um, he's a, like a bounty hunter. So he, you know, like the opening scene is him tracking down this woman who, uh, who, um, did some embezzlement or something and he tracks her down at her wedding and busts her. Um, so it's very established very quickly that he's this like really smart tracker that's why it's called the tracker anyway russell he's got a sweet bounty hunter name though <laughs> he does just like he has good names johnny rico is a really good name too casper so dean gets good names um so russell wong is the brother of the woman that was kidnapped in the opening scene and he used to be buddies with casper cvd's character because cvd and him used to be best friends and then cvd started dating said sister and then they broke up. See, that's already more fun to listen to when you say CVD. And then, the, yeah. So they haven't been friends for a while, but now he's come to seek CVD's help to try and track down the sister. So off they go to New York City from L.A. So, of course, we've got now two people, fish out of water in the big city. CVD used to be a cop in New York City, but he has a bad reputation. Um, but they soon um, hook up with a... Uh, spunky cab driver played by uh, Francois Robinson. Don't know much about her. Um, she's been in a, a number of things. Uh, it seems like she's based in Vancouver now um, in a lot of like movies that are shot here. Um, she's a spunky cab driver. She was a lot of fun. I, I really liked her character and, uh, you know, kind of that typical, like, you know, making the smarmy remarks as she's driving them around. Um, and of course, uh, Van Dien and Wong are bickering the whole time. Um, they eventually hook up with uh, Van Dien's ex-old partner, who's now in a wheelchair. His name's Chick. Um, so we've got the four of them now, like trying to going to try and uh, try and get this woman back. Um, interspersed in this, there's some really good fight scenes. Um, Russell Wong's scenes, in particular, are, are very well done. You know, because he can do kung fu as well. Uh, Van Dien, I, I thought he did pretty good in the fight scenes. Um, there was, I'd say, two or three. Um, and yeah, I, th- I thought this held its own. I mean, it, it's um, it's a direct-to-video action movie from the '90s, and uh, and uh, you know, these some of these are really, really bad, but this one I thought carried itself along quite well. Um, 
it was nice nice seeing Russell Wong in a leading role because I do find he's usually like the and again with most Asian actors and I've been thinking about Asian actors a lot lately because I've been thinking back to the around this time period the early 2000s when a lot of them were trying to make a go over here and none of them really were able to do it other than Jackie Chan like you know Chow Yun-Fat and Jet Li and and a lot of those guys did try and come over here and do that and they never were able to do that and Russell Wong has been an American actor throughout his whole career but nice seeing him getting a meteor role here because I really do like him yeah, I, I'd, I'd recommend this one for sure. Um, again, it's pretty pretty hard to find now. Like this came out on VHS. I don't think it's ever been released on on any other format. But for what it was, I thought it was a fun little uh, fun little movie. The Tracker. Josh's VHS Adventures. Yeah. All, all right. So uh, let's uh, talk about Mister Hooper. Yeah. How far in are we? We're like two twenty. <laughs> Have fun, people. Sorry, people. <laughs> <laughs> they should be used to this by now. 220, though? Really? Yeah, I know. That's pretty... Wow. <laughs> we should be wrapping up now. We should be. <laughs> Toby Hooper, good director. Good night! <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's do this. All right, so Hooper... Uh, well, for me, Toby Hooper was, uh, I mean, probably the first... An image of what Toby Hooper did is probably the first image that really scared me in, in the cinema. And that's when I was going, I've told this story before, when I was going to see Road Warrior and saw the trailer for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it changed me. I, uh, I'd i never seen anything like that. And this is just the trailer. And uh, I... The, the, the documentary style of that movie and the grittiness of it, like... Um, was unlike anything else of that of that time um like this movie looked like it was almost reality and i can't even imagine like this was on the re-release in the 80s but i can't even imagine what this would have been like going to a theater in the 70s and seeing this i mean because this was before some of the movies that copied it and i'm talking to you deranged um but you know there you know so there were movies that kind of copied this even at last house on the left was around here i don't know which one was released first last house came out in 72 so two years before right so but still like this whole style like this and texas chainsaw in particular just seemed different it seemed like punk rock uh you know before punk rock but it had that that kind of attitude about it and you know if you look into the way it was shot and all that it was a pretty crazy scene and uh pretty crazy how they did it and uh, yeah i mean that's he's the first memory i have of really really taking notice and being like oh my god this is totally different it's funny that my first toby hooper memory is actually poltergeist Really? Yeah, because um, I saw Poltergeist before I saw Texas Chainsaw. Yeah. Because I saw Poltergeist when I was really young, and I saw it on TV. And the main thing that sticks with me from Poltergeist is the whole face clawing oh, yeah, and the yeah. sink. So the scene where the guy's having the, the vision, and he starts just basically peeling his face off. And that's my first Tobey Hooper memory. But I didn't really learn about toby hooper for a while um i think that would be funny stories that the first time i saw texas chainsaw massacre i hated it really yeah and now it's my favorite horror movie of all time so the reason i hate it is i saw it on a vhs tape back when i was probably about i want to say 12 
And I think I didn't 12? like Yeah, probably 12 Jesus. or 13. And I think the reason I didn't like it is because of the company I was with when I watched it. Because I watched it with my, my best friend and his sister. And when we were watching it, they kind of hated it and weren't really getting into it. And I think that's kind of rubbed off on me where I was like, okay, maybe this is bad. Yeah, that does happen. And, you know, and I, I did read stuff about this movie and about it afterwards. And I was like, oh, I got to give this movie another shot. I mean, I'm getting heavily into horror movies. And this movie's always coming up as like one of the must-sees. So maybe I'll give it another shot. Second time I watched it, really, really dug it. Really, really liked it. Still not my favorite horror movie of all time. Seen it multiple times since every time I saw it, it kept getting more and more stature in my head. I'm like, okay, this is really good. This is really good. I really like this. Right up there with Halloween, Carpenter's Halloween, and was Texas Chainsaw. Went and saw the 4K restoration a couple of years ago. Texas Chainsaw, number one. No doubt in my mind. Because not Mm. only is it, like you said, a punk rock movie, as you'd call it, I would say it's just, it's a reaction a lot of it's a reaction to what was going on at the time. This is well documented. It was a reaction to Vietnam. It was a reaction to all that stuff. But it was also just a movie that when you watch it, you're just dreading the entire thing. Yeah. Like the movie starts with the Edwin Neal character being picked up as a hitchhiker and he starts fucking cutting himself up right there in the van. Yeah. And you're like, what the fuck is going on? And it just escalates from there to a point where you feel like you're in a fucking madhouse. Like the dinner table scene in that movie. Yeah. It feels like you're stuck in the middle of a group of people laughing in your face and you don't know how to escape. And that's exactly how it's portrayed. And it's just such a harrowing experience. And you can feel everything that Sally Hardesty's character and Marilyn Burns' character is feeling in that movie. You can feel at that moment because there's the close-ups of her eyes. There's the close-ups of them leaning in and laughing at her. There's Grandpa there. And, you know, it's played sort of for comedy. But at the same time, it's fucking horrifying that they have this mummified kind of guy trying to beat someone in the head with a hammer. You know, it's just a movie that just works. But then at the same time... You don't really appreciate the craft of the movie until you've seen it multiple times. Because yeah. you could write the movie off as just like, not oh, just a bunch of people making a low-budget horror movie and everything. There's nothing to this. But then when you look at it, after you've seen it multiple times, you can see how meticulous it was. Like, Toby Hooper and his, and his director of photography, Daniel Pearl, planned this movie out. Like, you can tell. There was stuff they planned out. And the shoot shot, like you said... The shoot was harrowing. There was injuries. There was people passing out. All that kind of stuff. That's not bullshit. You read any books about it, you know. But everything is planned out. The cinematography in this movie, bar none, some of the best cinematography in a 70s horror movie. Yeah. Bar none. And you don't realize that until you've seen this movie like multiple times. And, you know, it took me three or four viewings to put this on top echelon for me. And now, because of that 4K restoration that Dark Sky did, it's number one for me. Yeah. And, you know, and and Texas Chainsaw deserves everything it's, it, it has for status. It's unfortunate that the name is being ground into the dirt now. But this is his masterwork for sure. 
And, you know, and you can see his style in this movie. And the style does carry over to some of the later movies that we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to watch any Tobey Hooper movie, you're going to have to start with this one. Yeah. You know, you can't not. No question. And I think the key there is that you can watch it multiple times. Like, yeah. And it doesn't get still disturbing. Yeah. It's still disturbing. It's still disturbing. And even though I know what's happening, I'm still like, I look forward to the scenes now. And uh, you can't say that for every movie. I mean, a lot of movies I just watch once and I don't want to see them again. This one, I mean, I, I look forward to watching it every couple of years. And well, uh, and the new the new addition, like you said, it was... I, nah, I'm not going to go as far as some people and say it was a totally different movie because it wasn't. But um, It makes you realize but just how of, well made it is. There though. was a lot of scenes. There was scenes in particular where uh, like Franklin and Sally are going through the forest with flashlights you couldn't see what was going on in the past. Now you can. Yeah. And uh, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And even the shot of the camera tracking her from underneath the swing. Yeah. Even that with the new restoration makes it, you know, there's craft in this movie that, you know, you didn't quite notice as much until this restoration, I feel. Yeah. But, um, the thing, too, about this movie is that it's disturbing every time I watch it, even though, you're like you said, I know what's coming. Yeah. I still gets under my skin every time I watch it. Um, it was great when I experienced it in the 4K because it's the first time I saw it in a theater, and it was a smaller theater, and there wasn't a big crowd there, admittedly, but it was people who were Texas Chainsaw virgins, a lot of them. Oh, wow. They had never seen it before, and just to have the experience of kind of because i've seen the movie so much i would look over at them once in a while to see what was going on and just that experience where you could tell just by looking at them that they were kind of like a little bit mortified by this movie yeah is pretty fucking cool yeah and shows that you have made the kind of movie that deserves to be remembered 50 years later or whatever it's at now what's the anniversary on it now 40 something years later yeah like it's 40 almost 45 years old and it's still just as powerful, I think. Yeah, that edition was the 40th anniversary. Yeah, so it's yeah. like 44 years old now. So yeah. I guess it was three or four years ago I saw it. Yeah. But it's great because I go into the theater there. I'm wearing my Texas Chainsaw shirt that I'm wearing tonight, too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this guy's like, oh, you here to see Texas Chainsaw? I'm like, what's your first hint? And <laughs> the lady behind the counter is laughing at me. And then the guy's like, I've never seen Texas Chainsaw. And I'm like, you are in for a treat. <laughs> yeah. And then I didn't quite get a chance to see him when it was over, but I felt like I should have asked him, so how was that for you? <laughs> yeah, no because I would really be interested to see in this day and age someone's initial reaction to that movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I only wish I could see it for the first time now. Oh, I know. I, I it's like it's like, wow, what an experience that yeah. would be. Like especially if you were to see that in its initial theatrical run too. Like yeah. holy shit. Yeah. So yeah. Well I think we pretty much can say that for both of us that's the pinnacle of his filmography but i don't want to discount other stuff he's done so let's let's talk about a little bit about some of those okay well i'm gonna go right into the movie he followed up texas chainsaw with and that was we could we could kind of go chronologically and just yeah there's it's short enough i think we could do that um so the next one was called eaten alive in 1977 and um this is a weird movie because it's uh it's it's basically about this dude who owns a like a kind of a hotel on the bio in the south and he feeds people to his 
crocodile that is in this lake in the in the kind of backyard of the hotel. Yeah. And this he's this crazy dude played by Neville Brand. And again, like this shoot also sounds a little nuts because I think Neville Brand was I think I'm not sure he was abusing something. I believe it was alcohol and totally like off kilter on the set and uh, uncontrollable. The, the The whole movie was shot on sound stages and a lot of it's outdoor action in a, in a kind of a swamp atmosphere and this, uh, and there's this like, you know, this alligator lake and stuff, but it was all shot in studio. So it has this real kind of surreal quality to it. It's also got lighting in it. That's really bizarro too it's almost like you're watching a scooby-doo episode or a, or a comic book or something and yet it's really really kind of dark and twisted everyone in this movie seems off like Marilyn burns is in it but she you know she's introduced wearing this like crazy curly-haired wig and then then she's like starts she's got her her husband is really bizarre and he starts barking like a dog and and then she spends most of the movie like t- you know chained to a bed screaming, which she's very good at, I might add. But very, <laughs> if we didn't very, know that from Texas Chainsaw, yeah, she's good at screaming. Just very odd. And like Robert Englund shows up, and he's like this you know like pervert like hick guy, and um and it just it feels like everyone that's in this movie is just everything everything seems off, but in a good way. Um, but the first time I saw this again, like when I first saw this movie on VHS, I didn't like it because it was too fucking dark and I couldn't, didn't really understand what was going on, but watching it now, like on with the arrows release, um, it's something else. It's, it's a crazy movie and, but really enjoyable. Like it's probably the one I, I go back to the most after Texas Chainsaw. Yeah. I, I've never been able to get into this one. Have you seen the Arrow release? I haven't seen the Arrow release. I have the Dark Sky DVD from 2005, I think it is. Mm. But I, I've never been able to get into Eaten Alive, and I feel like the reason I haven't is because with it being a follow-up to Texas Chainsaw and sharing a lot of the same like lifeblood as Texas Chainsaw, just tonally and like vibe-wise, I just felt like it wasn't the proper step for him to make. Because it was kind of the same kind of rednecky, like horror, like going for the disturb a little bit. I just felt it was too similar to Texas Chainsaw in some ways that I just always have had a hard time getting into it. Yeah, it does. Like it's it's weird in that like it's an enjoyable movie. Like I like it, but it's 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 it, you're right. It it feels like a step back. Like yeah. even though he made it after. It feels like the movie he made before. Yeah. You know what I mean? It feels like he learned from Eating Alive yeah, and put yeah. it into play in Texas Chainsaw when it's the exact reverse. Yeah. So it's really odd that way, but I still enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen it in a while, but I, I've just, I've, I've seen it about three or four times and I just can't get into it. And I like it better each time I see it. Yeah. I so. like try and get into it and I just can't do it. Like every once in a while I'll hear someone say, Oh, eating alive, give it another chance. And I give it another chance. I'm like, I can't do it. Yeah. I, there's just something holding me back. And, and it's like you said, I think it's for me, it's too close to Texas Chainsaw, but it does feel, you're right. It does feel kind of like a step back creatively. Yeah. Yeah. And I used to hate it until I saw Arrow's release. Oh, okay. That changed things. Okay. So maybe it's like the 48, 40, uh, 4K of, the Texas Chainsaw. Maybe if if you see Arrow's cleaned up Blu-ray, you might maybe. Well, it'll Texas change Chainsaw your mind. was always in my top two. The four K right. just pushed it to yeah, number one. Yeah. 
So it's not like it changed my viewpoint. But it was enough to push it to number one, right? I guess. Yeah. Because I was always interchangeable between Halloween and Texas Chainsaw. They were always back and forth. But when I saw the 4K, I was like, okay, (laughs) it's now number one. Sorry, Halloween. You're number two. Yeah. So anyway, Eden's Eden Alive's int- it's an interesting movie. That's uh, sure. maybe if I maybe next time Arrow has a sale, I'll pick it up and yeah. give it a give it another boo. I'll give it a fourth time viewing and be like, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> you might be, you might be. I, I, I might be in the minority on this. <laughs> Who knows? I, I think it's got a fairly solid cult base behind it. Um, so what was the follow up to that? I guess it would be probably Salem's Lot, wouldn't it? Salem's Lot, yeah. Yeah, so now now Salem's Lot, this is an odd one for me because um this is a a TV movie from 1979 adaptation of Stephen King aired in two two separate nights. So it was a a mini series, a 4-hour two-part mini series. Um and the first time I saw it was the European theatrical 2-hour cut that oh, came out on okay. VHS. Like, oh, weird. Like, it came out on VHS in a single tape and a double tape. <laughs> right. And I only saw the one-hour, 20-minute version. I never saw the three-hour version until, like, They crammed that whole, in, whole thing into No, they edited hour, it down. To an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. Oh, wow. So I didn't see the full version until I was much older. Weird. So, like, this is another one. This is one where, unlike Eaten Alive, I have come around to Salem's Lot. Yeah, because I have seen the longer version now, and I do see what Hooper was doing with this movie. Like, there's some creepy shit in Salem's Lot. Yeah, like you know, there's the stuff everyone talks about—the tapping at the windows and all that yeah. stuff. But it's like a really, really, like even though I didn't like Eaten Alive, it did have a sort of mood to it, like yeah. a and and. That carries over to Sam's Lot. That's the thing about all three of his movies up to this point. They all had a s- distinctive mood to them. Yeah. And he brought that. I feel like he brought that to the, each one. He's like, okay, this movie, I'm going for this vibe. This movie, I'm going to go for this vibe. And this one, I'm going for this. And he, it worked in that respect. So when when have you seen Sam's Lot? First time watch last week. You've never seen it up to Never seen then. it before. And what was your opinion of it being like, your age and and never seen it before. Watched it all in one night. Liked it quite a bit. Yeah, yeah I, I really I I enjoyed it. I, uh, you know, and I was I was seeing if I, I didn't really I, I get your mood thing, but yeah. it did feel like it didn't feel as hoopery as some of his other movies. Yeah, but it still had that mood. But that there he were parts where yeah. I definitely it had the mood, it had the vibe for sure. Oh, but okay. um. I can't believe you haven't seen it till I've never seen 2017. it. Twenty seventeen. Wow. It's one of those ones where I was always like, Oh, I want to read the book first. Mm. And then I was like, I'm never gonna read the book. Yeah, so let's be with your reading habits, Josh. Yeah, I'll never you read never the book. would see Salem's lot. Oh you're right. I'd never see it. So <laughs> I thought I'm just gonna check it out and uh I really liked the monster in it. I thought that was great. Uh, uh Barlow, is that it is? Barlow, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Barlow. Yeah. I really liked um What's his name? The guy from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. James Mason. I thought he was great. Uh, he's always so... He's always... That voice of his is so, so like, unsettling, even though it's British. Um, <laughs> David Soul. I mean, Hutch. What can I say? Never really... He never really was in much, though. Like, he never... He's been a steady actor, but he... This is really only his... His only real starring role that I... I think there is. Well, you know, the only thing that matters about David Soul, Josh, 
Don't give up on us, baby. Oh, does he have a song? Yeah. And oh it's no! Terrible. Really? Yeah. Oh shit. Anyway, I I, <laughs> I watched it in one night, and it totally held my interest the whole time. Cool. Um, because I was like, yeah, three hour running time. Jesus Christ. But... Yeah, that that's one I think when I saw it when I was a kid, it was shortened version. So yeah, that never benefits. Yeah. Anything like same thing with um. All those. What was another miniseries I saw where they trunks truncated it? Uh, the day after, I think. You know that apocalypse. Oh yeah, yeah. The, nu- the nuclear, nuclear war one. Yeah. yeah, I think that was shortened for uh, home video too. Oh no, really? Yeah. Huh. yeah. So that never works. But yeah, yeah. I, I think it's an interesting move for him because it wasn't like his first two movies where I said they had that vibe of evil rednecks kind of thing yeah. going on, like the down south kind of stuff whereas this one was more of a standard small town vampire story yeah and it showed that he could handle that so yeah. I, I think that was a good growth too because i feel like if he would have done another movie like eating alive he'd get kind of typecast in this oh that's the guy who makes those southern horror movies you know and and i think it's a good thing that he moved on to this yeah and i, I guess my thing is um now it's hard. It's hard looking at this in retrospect, with all the Stephen King adaptations we've seen over the years. But like to me, watching it now, you like you asked what it was like watching it now as an adult. Like for me, it felt a bit more King than Hooper. Right. If that makes any sense, because I've I've seen this small town a million times in King stuff, in it, in Needful Things, like all those movies, right? Um, so when I'm watching this, it's like that you know yeah but i guess in context though this really was only i think only carrie was out before in this. context this yeah. was would have been yeah totally different right yeah. so um so maybe maybe hooper is part of what established like maybe he is the one who sort of established all that because this was probably the first small town king well carrie we didn't really see yeah i think carrie was the only thing that was adapted before this yeah because... and there was no it wasn't a small town yeah it wasn't like like carrie could have been in a city whereas this had that this yeah. is a small town right so anyway it was it was it was well done i thought the horror scenes were really good and like i said i really liked the creature yeah it was, it was good all right, so the next one after this I haven't seen, so you're going to have to talk about was The Fun House. Oh, The Fun House. Yeah. Um, another t- another Hooper title where I, I need really need to revisit this because uh, Scream Factory put it out on Blu-ray five years ago, and yeah. I still haven't bought it, and I should have bought it. Um, it's a slasher movie set at a carnival Yeah. where it's basically a bunch of kids sneaking into the Fun House after hours and being killed by like the carnival barker's deformed son and i don't remember a lot about this to be completely honest i just remember that it seemed fairly dark seems to be a theme and when you watch movies back in the day they seem to be darker than they should be and um like literally or like just dark, look dark like just, okay yeah. you know like you watch it on vhs and it's darker than it yeah, should be yeah. i think vhs is the last time i saw this movie right and, and you know i remember being pretty good but i think the problem was is at the time i was on my texas chainsaw renaissance where it was this is around the time when texas chainsaw was gaining steam for me as like this awesome movie and i was like oh yeah toby hooper he's doing another slasher it's another slasher movie from toby hooper and then being a little bit let down because it was like more standard 
North right. American slasher movie. Like it followed a lot of the same formula as the ones that went before it. So I feel like that's kind of why I've also avoided revisiting it a little bit. And I know this movie has some love. Like I know there are people who yeah. really dig Funhouse. It's based on a Dean Koontz book, if you can believe it. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, I there should be something I like. I, I love movies set in carnivals. Yeah. And like at amusement parks. So I really should buy this Blu-ray. Yeah, there there should be 50 movies like this. Like, I don't know why there's not more of them. Of amusement park horror movies? Yeah, like, it just seems I perfect. I know. The only one I remember apart from this is A Dark Ride from... 2006 and i didn't like that one either yeah the i haven't one was seen that. there's that fun host massacre that came out recently oh yeah, but, yeah 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 but it just feels like a perfect like i always think of that when i'm in a haunt yeah i'm like what if there was an actual murderer in here oh yeah with like the scare house remember i talked about that oh yeah the scare yeah house. where they didn't take advantage of the haunt part yeah of it. yeah and then it's like the only movie i can honestly say that used an amusement park to its advantage wasn't even a fucking horror movie. It was The New Kids by Sean S. Cunningham. Right. That had a finale in an amusement park where it used it perfectly. Nice. And well, you said Shakedown did it too. Yeah. Not Shakedown. Or, uh, number One with a Bullet. Oh, Number One. Was it Number One with a Bullet? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So anyway, I'm going to revisit the... I'm not going to revisit the Funhouse, but I, I do know that people seem to like this movie a lot more than I remember liking it. So yeah. it's one of those ones that kind of fell through the cracks for me. Yeah. I can talk about his next one quite easily, and so can you. Yes. Because that's Poltergeist yeah. from 1982. And like I said, my first experience with Hooper was Poltergeist. Yeah. And there's been much said about Poltergeist. I'm not worried. I don't feel like we need to touch on the who directed it, blah, 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 all that stuff. Because honestly, if his name is on the product, he fucking directed it, in my eyes. Mm. I mean... Sure, he might have got a little bit of assistance, but it's his movie, and I think it's a good movie. I think Poltergeist still holds up pretty well today. Some of the effects, like the face thing, don't work as much as the, as well as they probably yeah. did. But like we said when we talked about Poltergeist in the past, it's the family unit in this movie, the Joe Beth Williams, Craig T. Nelson, and the kids that make this movie work. And maybe Spielberg had the influence on that in, in kind of making the family the core of the story rather than the horror. But I, I feel like a lot of the stuff that is horror-related, Hooper did contribute quite a lot to. What do you, when's the last time you saw it? I saw it about six years ago. but yeah. uh, Not a fan. Well, no, actually, I, I saw it a bit longer. Than, I know when I saw it, I was a little preoccupied at the time, but... Um, I do, I do know that um, I feel like they co-directed it. It could be, but I mean, like, so we're talking about Hooper and Spielberg. Yeah, the, the yeah, problem like, is they shouldn't. It shouldn't be. It should be taken as on like as a movie. I feel, and now I feel like it's been eclipsed by who directed it. Who directed? It? I feel like that's eclipsed it as an actual movie. It's true though, but you know, it's it's funny because I've never really thought of it as a Hooper movie. Myself. No, no, I don't think I think because Spielberg's name was posted above the titles because I think it was Steven Spielberg presents or something. It was. And, and I, you know, whenever I like when I'm thinking of Poltergeist, it's always like, oh, yeah, Toby Hooper directed it. Like, I never think of it as part of his filmography. Like when I think Toby Hooper, it's not one that pops. Oh, in I head. think of Poltergeist. Interesting. Yeah. 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 
So I do think that I think they co-directed. I think that's what really happened, but who knows? We'll never know. I don't think uh, Spielberg's never going to talk. I about honestly it. don't think we need to know. I, I kind of would like to know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see a ma- like a a um, making of or something, and I'd the, love someone. The fr- thing I'd love that I find interesting though, about Poltergeist is that it was a hit movie. Yeah, and you know his name was attached to it as the sole director. Yeah, but it didn't kickstart his career. No, that's what I find interesting. Like. If you have a big hit like Poltergeist, you figure he would go on to make more big studio movies. And instead, he started making movies for canon. He was supposed to direct E.T. Did you know that? Really? Yeah. I can't see that. I know. Well, he turned it down. I think he was also supposed to direct... He was supposed to direct something else weird that I can't remember what it was. I think it was like Captain America or something. Oh, weird. Yeah, I think he was supposed to direct something else super weird that you wouldn't expect him to. Oh, I know what you're talking about, but I can't... It's on the tip of my tongue, but... I can't remember. Maybe yeah. if you think about it. Yeah. But I mean, you, you would trigger Poltergeist would open the doors for him and, and shove him through the door. But maybe, maybe the Spielberg thing did do some damage. Who knows? It's like, it's such a story that we're never going to know about. Yeah. Really. But it's a solid supernatural thriller. Like it really is. I really like the cast. I think some of the scares in it work. I think the scene with all the coffins, popping out in the, of the un, unfinished swimming pool is a really effective scene. And I, I think that because he was the only credited name on this and it was a hit movie, he should have gone on to other things. And I'd really curious to know why that didn't happen. Exactly. Yeah. That's why we need a documentary. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> get on that. Somebody make a documentary about Poltergeist. <laughs> so what came after Poltergeist, Josh? One of my favorites. Yeah. Life force. Oh yeah. Yes. Um, there's this is another movie with multiple cuts. Um, yep. I've seen both European cuts better. European cuts better, um, which Screen Factory has put out. Um, so this is a movie about space vampires, and um, I mean, a lot of us as youngsters remember this movie very clearly for the extended nude scenes from Mathilda May yep. uh, as a space vampire, but she walks around completely naked. Um, throughout probably the first five or ten minutes of this movie. Um, that's the main thing that I remembered from when I was young. Watching it again, um, it's like, it's a pretty crazy movie. It's like, kind of, it's, 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 it's about aliens. It's apocalyptic. It's got Steve Rails back as an astronaut who's like completely off the rails. Yep. It's got this cop character who is pretty cool but no one ever remembers the actor's name including myself right now (laughs) um but it's just this movie that's just bananas yeah it's super weird (laughs) yeah it's um but i like it i mean i i do like it quite a bit and uh but but it's one of those movies where i can't really remember the whole plot just because it's kind of all over the place but i remember like that opening scene i mean who could forget I remember, like, you know, Rails back and, and her embracing in, like, some light tunnel. I remember London, like, falling apart. Like, yep. <laughs> but it's, uh, and I remember being really entertained every time I seen it. I, I feel like this period is really funny for him as as a career because this is when Canon was like, hey, we'll give you a three-picture deal. You can pretty much do whatever you want. And he went for it. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, Life Force is, especially that European cut. 
is just such a over the top wacky movie and when you watch it you're like yeah I, I can see why canon would make this it seems like something they would do but it seems like they spent way more money than yeah, they I normally think they, would i think they did i think they poured a lot of money into the budget of this movie yeah and i think that i think that what happened was uh maybe the european cut is what they test screened and it didn't do well so that's why they chopped out like i think it's like they chopped 20 minutes out of it or something yeah. and i think that's why because i think it didn't test screen very well so they just cut it down for american audiences and that version's not as good no it just doesn't hang as well together even though the movie itself technically doesn't hang that well together (laughs) it's just it makes even less sense if that's possible yeah but yeah it's a it's a fun movie lots of cool effects yeah like i remember when the vampires like they they it's quite called life force because they like suck the life out of people's and then you see their bodies shrivel up. They become like a husk. Yeah. It's and really then, cool. you know, of course, Mathilda May. And, yeah. You know, Rails back at the time was still pretty cool. Yeah. So he was like a cool hero. And, yeah, it was a well, fun movie. A weird hero, though. Like, I don't think I'd seen him as a hero before. I yeah. don't think I, or since. <laughs> like, I guess. he was, I remember, uh, I don't know a lot about, like, he was in The Stuntman, but he's always yeah. been one of those off kilter actors. He had a really good pair of episodes of the X Files in the early seasons, and he, of course, played Charles Manson. But um, yeah, so I thought it was kind of a weird role, like a weird choice to have him in the role, actually. But that's, I guess, that's Toby Hooper. You'll you'll try shit, right? And, yeah, uh, and that's I think that's a lot of a lot of his career is kind of like trying shit. <laughs> He's like, let's just do it, like the next movie. When he decided to remake a 1953 film. Oh, yeah. Called Invaders from Mars. Yeah, I saw it once. Don't remember. And, and and the thing about that movie is is that he decided to remake it, but he also decided to have Canon give him a big enough budget to just go for it on the effects front and just do all these weird alien creatures through the whole thing. Right. He decided to bring in Karen Black as the mom who doesn't believe the kid that there's aliens invading the town. And it's just a wacky PG-rated, like alien invasion movie, where it's like obviously Toby really loved the original movie when he was a kid, and he said, "Hey, if Canon wants to give me money to make this remake, I'm going for it." Yeah, and you know it doesn't particularly play. It's been a while since I've seen it, but it doesn't particularly play great. But this is another one that Shout Scream Factory has put out on Blu-ray. Yeah, and I have the Blu-ray at home. So it's just one of those movies where I'll watch it and I'll just be like, yep, that's definitely the period of Tobey Hooper where he was just going for it. Yeah, and it, it sounds like um, kind of like that. It's kind of like Tim Burton on Mars Attacks. Like, you know, you just don't really see a lot of this anymore where the, a director is big enough where a studio will just throw money at him to just do some sort of like this kind of like pet project that they want to do. Because that's what it felt like to me, like. Hooper loved the movie and wanted to remake it. Maybe we're totally off, but that's well. Kind of, I, I that's think kind that's the what the case is. But I also think that the reason they were throwing money at him is so they could get to the third movie of his contract, right? Which is, which is Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two. Exactly. And the funny thing about Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two is, I don't think that Tobey Hooper delivered exactly what Canon Films wanted. <laughs> I think Tobey Hooper was just like, you know what? I've done Texas Chainsaw once. I'm going to fuck with them. I'm just going to go all full bore black comedy on this one. Yeah. And I, I, 
I don't like Texas Chainsaw 2 nearly as much as the original, but I understand why people like it. Because it's such a shift of gears from what he did in the original. You know, he introduces black comedy from the get-go. You've got Bill Mosley playing his, like, career-defining role as Chop Top. You know, you've got Dennis Hopper running around and having a chainsaw fucking duel with Leatherface. And it's just over-the-top gore, over-the-top black comedy. I think just Toby Hooper got together with his with the writer, Elkit Carson, and says, hey, what kind of middle fingers can we, sh- can we throw at Canon Films for giving us some money? Like, I just feel like he just... He was just laughing at Canon Films, the, all three all three of these movies. Like, they gave me money to do whatever I want. <laughs> I'm just going to do it. Why not? Let's do it. Yeah. I mean, Texas Chainsaw 2 is one of those movies where it's got such a cult following now. And it's one when the first time I saw it, I was like, I love Texas Chainsaw. What's he doing? <laughs> yeah. But I've come to, res- I've learned to like it a lot more now. But it's just such a weird kind of thing to have the guy who directed the original come back 12 years later and to make a movie that's so polar opposite yeah. of the original. Well, hmm. I thought stupid. Stupid? I, I've watched it recently. I watched it last week as well. And you didn't like it? I've seen it before. Yeah. Um, didn't really care for it. Didn't really have an opinion on it. So I, I thought I'd better watch it again. Um, I really liked Caroline Williams' Stretch. And I really like the opening, the opening sequence where Leatherface like kills a couple of jocks, and it's um, it's a pretty interesting. The it's bridge pretty, scene, the bridge scene, where okay. yeah, where he's on the back of the, and that's a pretty iconic scene, and and that's one thing. Just on a side note, like with Hooper, like all of the movies have a few like iconic scenes that like feel like only he could kind of pull off, and that's that's one of them. Um, but I just felt like. I think had Caroline Williams and that character of Stretch not been in this movie, it would have not worked at all. Like I, she was very likable. Um, but as soon as they left the radio station, I, I just thought it was stupid. Like um, I thought Hopper's character was just ridiculous. Like there, he wasn't really doing anything other than yelling. Really, uh, I mean, yes, there's a chainsaw duel, which is kind of fun, but not long enough and not not enough. I, I didn't really care. Like, I wasn't like, oh, God, I hope he survives this chainsaw duel. I was just like, eh. I was reading for Stretch and hoping she'd get out of it. And I also thought Le- Leatherface was a bit of a pussy. Like, I, I kind of, I like Leatherface being an, like a, kind of like, you know, we talk about with Jason and Michael Myers and all that. You want them to be like this unknown force. You don't want them to have feelings. And I thought the choice of giving Leatherface some feelings was... It didn't didn't really work for me. I mean, I, I, I like you said. I mean, I can I can kind of see why this would have a cult following. It certainly goes by fast. I mean, I felt like I had just started it, and there was only fifteen minutes left, right? I mean, um, but there there is a a scene with involving grandpa and like a dinner table that's exactly out of the first one that goes on for about ten minutes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, man. I actually got to admit that I, 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 rec- I haven't seen two in a while, but I actually think I, le- if I was, I think I like Leatherface Part Three better. Yeah, I got to revisit that too. Like the uncut version. Yeah, I, I've only seen that on like tape trading VHS. Yeah, so, yeah. So I don't know. I couldn't see half the movie. 
um, but I feel like you might be right. I mean, part two has this, again, it, it's kind of reminded me of Eaten Alive in some ways because it has that kind of comic booky lighting sometimes and it feels like this yeah like a like a live action horror comic but um i just yeah there there were just some choices made that i just felt like it wasn't yeah it's not i didn't like the whole hopper thing and that's kind of a lot of the plot but i can see why people would i get it i just don't like it <laughs> so yeah after the ken films it kind of became a uh i don't know I'd like to call this part of of his <laughs> his career as the uh, the doldrums of the career. Well, to be it honest, was kind of the doldrums for the rest of his career. To be honest, yeah, like um, you know, after TCM two, there was spontaneous combustion, which is you know, it's pretty good. Did it's, you rewatch it? I didn't rewatch it, but I I remember it being pretty. It's got Brad Dourif. He's class A weirdo. Why not? He can set people on fire. It's got some pretty cool practical effects. It's just like, it's just one of those movies I remember seeing in Fangoria mm. when it was being made, and then it didn't seem to show up on video store shelves for a while. And I'm not sure if that's just because it got delayed or what the deal is, because back then you didn't know any of these stories particularly. They just, you'd read about a movie and then it would show up. So it's not one that I think about to watch of his that often. And uh, I, there's probably a good reason for that. But I still feel like it's a lot better than some of the stuff we're going to talk about that came after it. I hated it. Did you? And because I bought that, I bought it when uh, Anchor Bay put it out. Yeah, that's the version I have. And um, but the thing is, is that even though I don't like this movie, I do think about it from time to time. So hmm. again, like I just said, he's got some scenes that I think about. But this was yeah, not I, I don't I don't like this movie. <laughs> Well, Dourif, it's got sweaty Dourif in it, and he made he made it. Yeah, and it had. I remember there was some fifties music, and I think the opening scene was in the fifties. It was it had some interesting moments. I'm I'm kind of curious to revisit it, but my memory of it is not good. (laughs) Well, well, let me tell you, Josh, the movie he made after Spontaneous Combustion, I do not like, and that would be Night Terrors. You've never seen it. That is. A slog, dude. That's like Robert Englund playing the Marquis de Sade. And I remember it just being like him just vamping it up for the cameras, like Robert Englund vamping it up for the cameras. And I I feel like it was kind of an anthology movie. I remember absolutely nothing about it apart from the fact that when I ejected the tape from the player, I was like, that's not at all what I wanted. Was there a TV series called Night Terrors? I don't think so. Hmm. I think there's a TV series called Night Gallery. No, no, I thought there was one. Anyway, anyway, I haven't seen this one. Yeah, so. I, I didn't. I don't. I didn't like it. I remember yeah. not liking it. This is one of those ones that I think is pretty hard to find of his. Yeah, and with good reason. I think this was one that was produced by like one of the Menahem Golan too. I think it was like after Cannon had disintegrated, he brought Hooper back to produce and produce this. Right. And it's just, it just doesn't work. Like I remember the artwork for it's really cool. Cause the artwork's like a screaming face with snakes coming out of the eyes. Yeah. And I was like, Oh yeah, this is going to be awesome. And then I watched it. I'm like, what is this? Right. This is not what I wanted. And at the time, Robert Englund was still Freddie. So you're like, what are you doing? Right. So yeah, I remember that not being very good. Okay. So there was, okay. So we're, um, we're missing something. No. What I want to say is, 
Toby Hooper directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yep. And he directed Life Force. And he directed Salem's Lot. Yep. And he directed Poltergeist. Yeah. Maybe. And we liked all those movies. And even Texas Chainsaw 2 yep. and Invaders from Mars. This is the period that we want to remember. Yeah. And this is the period that we love. Yep. So I don't want to go through the rest of his movies, okay. knocking them anymore. I'm fine with that. Is there anything else that we can say that was good? About, I just because I know his career right. didn't really work. I out. enjoyed Toolbox Murders. Yeah, and I can see that too. And I think yeah. it was probably better than the original. Yeah, I enjoyed Toolbox Murders with Angela Bettis from May. Yeah. I thought that was a really solid, not really a remake, because it was way different. Yeah. And I thought that was really, that was him going back and, and showing that he could, because, you know, w- like you were saying, we maybe shouldn't shine a negative light on all the stuff he made because, you know, he had done a string of movies where I was like, what is he doing? He's losing his touch. Yeah. And then Toolbox Murders come along and I remember like watching going, I really liked that. I thought that was really fun. Yeah, I agree. You know, and you know, it was like opens with Sherry Moon Zombie being murdered on a couch, which is, you know, I'm fine with that because <laughs> I don't really like her as an actress. And then Angela Bettis and all the weirdos who live in this apartment building yeah. being attacked by a mass killer. Right. And to- if you've seen the original Toolbox Murders, not a thing like this. No. Like this is like the originals, you know, Cameron Mitchell running around, you know, basically murdering half naked women. It's got some stuff. good kill scenes, but uh, I thought the Hooper version was f- a better movie. I just think the Hooper version was super entertaining. I think he handled the scares really well. Yeah. And I just think it was a solid made movie and it made me long for the days of like you know, the canon days and, and things like that. Like we had we had slogged through a few that weren't that great and, and this seemed like a really good resurgence for me. Yeah. And I, I always thought he'd get it I, I was hoping he'd get it back after that. Yeah, and I really enjoyed his sequence in body bags yeah. that he did with uh John Carpenter because that one was more of a horror comedy, but his sequence was actually the most serious one and I think it worked the best. Because it was about a, a guy getting an eye transplant. Mm. And from like a serial killer, and then it kind of like you know he'd see stuff through his eye, and it it you know was it, that the Mark Hamill sequence? Yeah, okay, yeah, and it yeah. got really dark. Oh, I by, didn't realize Hooper. Yeah, did that. he directed that one, and it got huh. really dark by the end. And I yeah. really liked that story. That's I all thought, I remember from that movie. Yeah, I thought he did a really good job with that, and um, he did write a novel called Midnight Movie. Right. In, yeah. Uh, two thousand. I forgot about that. I think yeah. It was two thousand and eight or seven. Yeah, and it was uh, it was kind of like a piss take on himself because the main character was Tobey Hooper and he was like dysfunctional and he couldn't get a movie made and all this stuff. So it was kind of like semi-autobiographical, but fictional at the same time. And I thought that was pretty fun because it was like a murder mystery mixed with like Tobey Hooper being a, a sack of shit who smoked pot all the time and couldn't keep his wife and all this stuff. And it was kind of fun. And, and you know, I would have liked to have seen more novels from him like that, actually, I think. Yeah. I think if he would have focused his energy on that, I think that would have been good. And I just, it's like a lot of these guys who were, like, considered auteurs at the time. They just can't get stuff off the ground anymore. And, you know, and I think the problem with him was, unlike his peers like Carpenter or guys like that, he what, he did make movies for the paycheck. And that's why I feel like the latter half of his filmography is littered with these kind of movies. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because, you know, apart from say the ward, 
there's nothing really on John Carpenter's that you can say was a paycheck movie. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the difference with Carpenter is at least Carpenter seems to have found his his voice again just in yeah. music now. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's sad because these are guys we worshipped when we were yeah. younger, and they never, they just, after a certain time, the genre, like, I think it was, like, probably the 90s killed the genre for a while. Yeah. And nobody wanted them, and, and then they just couldn't get work. And, you know, unfortunately, I think Tobey took what was offered him. And sometimes he shouldn't have. Yeah, I mean, it did. It did kind of sully his reputation a bit, you know. But I, you know, I mean, a, a good example of this is this is an awful story to mention, but I, um, I remember walking through um, the Masters of Horror production office and looking into an office, and Toby Hooper was sitting at a computer, and I kept walking, and I'm like, why didn't I just go and say something? Did you know it was him? Yep. Wow. But, I mean, I would have had to make a bit of an effort to, like, get permission to to chat. But I was just like, you know, there had been, uh, yeah. I mean, but he also, I didn't know if he was the most approachable guy in the world, too. But uh, now I'm sure, I sure wish I had just said thank you for making Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, pretty crazy. But well, uh, but speaking of Masters of Horror, I I did enjoy. Uh, I only saw the first one, the Dance with the Dead, with Robert England again. Um, I thought that was pretty good as well. I enjoyed that in the yeah. first season. Like it's not like he completely lost his touch. Yeah, like you know we said Toolbox Murders, Masters of Horror, his novel and stuff. Like I feel like he still had his touch. I just feel like he was taking paycheck movies. Yeah, and that's unfortunate because you know. The reason that he's so important to us as genre fans is that chunk that he did at the beginning. And, you know, no matter how much we want to talk about the stuff he made later in his career, we can't discount that and we'll never forget that kind of stuff. Right. And and, and you're right. We could have gone through the rest and that's a good decision not to do that because I don't want to be a bummer on this. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to celebrate the stuff he made and and you know i'm never gonna forget texas chainsaw as long as i live i'm never gonna forget that first time that i saw poltergeist and saw the guy peeling his face off i'm not gonna forget you know seeing life force and being like what the fuck is this you know i say it all the time man like with the guys like this you can't take away the fact that they did that no so no matter what's happened later yeah he still made fucking Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Well, exactly. You know, like, he made my favorite horror movie of all time. Exactly. That's so, pretty fucking important. You know, and, you know, even if he had stopped making movies after Life Force, um, he'd still have a pretty awesome legacy there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, if he had to make movies for a paycheck, it's okay. I mean, you know, I, even guys like De Niro and Pacino, I mean, we always are whining about, why are they not like they used to be? It doesn't matter, really, because they still did the shit that they used to do. I think it's just unfortunate because as fans and being more invested in these people's careers than, say, the average film goer would be, like the mainstream audience or someone who's not really invested in movies in general like we are, it's just kind of like you want everything these people to do to be amazing because you don't want to have... You don't want to feel like, you know, your opinion to them sullied a little bit. Like, you know, like, like I'm always like, fuck, what if Tarantino 
makes a bad movie eventually. I'm like, that would fucking ruin everything because he's never made a bad movie to me personally, right? Yeah. So it's like, I want that because these are people who I who I idolize and who I, I love what they do. And, and you know, it's just kind of like you that disappointment sometimes. It's just kind of like being a film fan and being more invested in this than the average person. It does sting a little bit more. And you're right. We shouldn't really be looking at it from that perspective but sometimes dude it's kind of hard it is i agree i agree but, so but let's just celebrate toby for yeah. everything we said texas chainsaw life force eaten alive for you anyway yeah salem's lot you know he made some good stuff and like you said there are scenes in all of those movies that we remember I don't particularly like Eaten Alive, but I remember scenes from Eaten Alive. And you're right. That's something that we can take away from this is that even if the products weren't the best products, there was always something there in his early movies that we could latch on to and say, that's a Tobey Hooper movie. Yeah. And that's important. And the other thing is, with back to Masters of Horror, he was picked for the first season of Masters of Horror. Yeah. And all those guys were legends. Yeah. Right. I mean, well, Lucky McKee, maybe not so much, but <laughs> but still, like he's a good director. But um, the, the everyone else in that season was like truly, and Hooper did not seem out of place there at all. Right. So, um, yeah. Um, I also just want to mention he made an episode of Amazing Stories that I haven't seen, um, but it's supposed to be one of the best episodes of that series, and that's a series I certainly want to revisit. And you have had a bit of trivia as well. <laughs> what was that? Oh, that I discovered that he uh, directed a Billy Idol video? A very classic Billy Which Idol video. Which one was video. it again? Uh, Dancing, Dancing with, with myself. myself. I was like, yeah, I'm looking up Toby Hooper things. And I'm like, I, I, I think I text you or I sent you a Facebook message. I'm like, dude, Toby Hooper directed Dancing with Myself. And you're like, I know. I'm like, that's fucking rad. <laughs> it's pretty. It is because it's a, it's a great video. And I... Uh, I still yeah. like that's it's a great video, but you know, the funny thing about that video is it feels like John Carpenter should have directed. Maybe it's because it like, had a real Escape from New York. Yeah, it's like I didn't even it. know that until like <laughs> last week, and it blew my fucking mind. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, "Whoa!" Yeah, because we used to think Billy Idol was the shit back in the <laughs> early '80s. You know, well, that was a Generation X song too. So yeah, it was yeah. too. Yeah, right. But um, anyway, we just uh, hope that. Uh, Hope that maybe, you know, uh, you know, now that I fuck, I can't believe it's been a year since he passed away. But uh, um, I'm actually glad I I revisited a Toby Hooper movie, two Toby Hooper movies in the last week. So um, maybe hope we're hoping maybe one of you guys will uh, check one out, too, just yeah. in, in memory. And maybe I should finally buy that Funhouse Blu-ray and, and give that another chance. You know why I haven't bought it? Because huh. I think I already have it, but I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's bad, <laughs> it's Josh. It's horrible. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, um, hopefully you guys stuck with us through this uh, three hours and 15 minutes. <sighs> and, uh, you know, if if you want to comment to us about our episode or even just tell us, fuck, stop talking so goddamn fuck, much. Why did you call it Toby Hooper when you only started talking about yeah, him for like, an hour? Like, after. Come on, guys. I mean, <laughs> come on. Um, <laughs> search for GBW podcast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. You'll find us gbwpodcast.com and of course head on to iTunes give us a review and a rating it is important even though Josh shakes his head every time because the more <laughs> reviews 
the more exposure. But the main thing I want to say, and I'm going to say this now, is if you like the show, interact with us. Interact with your fellow listeners. Tell somebody to listen to us. Rather than give us a review, just tell somebody else, and then they can come and listen to. And then we can all be a happy movie, B-movie, horror movie, everything nerdy family together. That would be great because we know how hard you've been working it giving us the reviews on iTunes. So. <laughs> Maybe being sarcastic it, to the listening audience isn't the best tactic, Josh. We've got like seven. But I'd love to see that go up to ten people, so make it happen. Prove me wrong. All right. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Good night. Shockma. Shockma. <laughs>